first few months of doing it, it was a case of, okay, no one's really reading this. What do I do? But now, I don't know, I've got like 30,000 something people reading it and I know I have to do it each week. And so the momentum sort of dries itself. And equally now, it's like, it's no effort at all for me to, you know, come home from work and make a YouTube video because I've got the momentum. I've got these, I don't know, 600,000 people that are, you know, supposedly waiting for a new video. So I think starting off with requiring motivation or discipline and then moving on to momentum, that kind of sustains it automatically. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Van Life, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Ali Abdal, who started a YouTube channel teaching study hacks and productivity tips while he was in med school at Cambridge University. Today, his channel has over 775,000 loyal subscribers. Now, Ali is the type of guy that will crush, yes, destroy any excuses you have about starting a side hustle. Not only did he start his channel while he was in med school, which is extremely hard, but he has also graduated and now works full-time as a doctor and still finds time to put out three high-quality videos every single week. If you've ever wanted to learn about what it takes to grow a successful YouTube channel, you will love this episode. In this conversation, you'll learn three major things. Number one, the latest and greatest productivity apps you should be using. Number two, how to balance work, life, and your side hustle. And three, Ali's exact process for getting big on YouTube. Quick bonus number four, after we had this conversation, which was over two and a half hours, and we've cut it down to just the meaty parts for you, I felt like I was on cloud nine. I loved talking with Ali. I could do it all day, and I'm excited to share this with you. You're going to join those three things, plus a bonus, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Enjoy. Before we jump into the conversation, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you want juicy business meaty episodes to devour. That's youtube.com slash okdork. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener M. Hill Fan. They left a review saying, my favorite business podcast because it's not all business. It was really touching. I really appreciate this comment and I appreciate every single one of you out there. I hope this podcast and all the content we're putting out there for you makes your life so much better. I love you. Thank you for your feedback as well. And if you want to be shout out in a future episode, just leave a review on iTunes or anywhere. I check every single one of them. All the notes that I did for preparing the show are in Notion. Oh, wow. You started using Notion. Yeah, because of you. I was like Mitchell on the team who, who I think you've emailed with a little bit uh, yeah. kind of got me into it. So far, I'm still into the Google Docs thing. I don't get it. Oh, interesting. As in like for writing stuff or for like managing projects and things? A little bit of both. I think this is a trap as you get older where I'm like, I like Google Docs, so I'm going to stick with Google Docs. I mean, in fairness, I quite like Google Docs as well for writing stuff. But I think Notion is good for, it's like Airtable, you know, if you're managing a video schedule with the team and, and stuff like that. So that's interesting. So Notion's more project management notes for you, and then writing is more Google Docs? Yeah, writing is Google Docs or Bear or Ulysses, depending on how I'm feeling on the day. Hold on, walk me through that. Are you familiar with Bear and Ulysses on the Mac? They're like Scrivener. It's like writing tools, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's such a, a pleasant writing interface. And Bear, for example, is it's sort of like what I wish Evernote would be in that it's blazing fast. It's super pretty. It's nice. It never takes ages to load. And so if I'm writing a blog post or an email newsletter or something, I tend to draft it in Bear. And I'll only tend to use Google Docs if it's like a long thing that requires input from multiple people. Because obviously the suggestion and commenting features on Google Docs are pretty good. Oh, it's really nice. And then what, is, what do you use Ulysses for? Ulysses I've been sort of playing around with. Are you familiar with the website, The Sweet Setup? No. So that's run by this guy called Sean Blanc. It's like they review the best Mac, iOS, and iPad apps. And they've got this kind of course on how to use Ulysses. And it seems like loads of people in their team use Ulysses. It's sort of exactly like Scrivener, really. So you can kind of 
put your notes into multiple categories and multiple folders and stuff. It's just also quite a pleasant writing experience. And there's a guy, uh, Sean Wes. I think you might might have come across him online. I know of Sean Wes. Yeah, so he, he's got a screencast in this Udyssey's course, and his setup is absolutely incredible. Like, he's got thousands of notebooks, and he, takes, he writes like 2,000 words a day or something ridiculous like that, which gets him to writing a million words a year. And he tracks all of that in Udyssey's. So after I saw that screencast, I was like, oh my god, if that's what Sean West is doing, <laughs> then I should start doing this as well. Do you ever think this is bad, though? Probably. Like, because I, I think there's this productivity thing where people watch your videos or they ask me, like, what to do app do you use? And I'm like, you're still not really doing anything. And, you know, even our company, I run AppSumo. I help run AppSumo.com. We have a team that, that does uh, really impressive. But people are like, I'm going to buy this tool and it's going to do everything. And I'm like, well, you still have to start the business. Yeah, no, this is a trap that I definitely fall into. And sometimes I find myself kind of browsing tutorials for Ulysses and looking at people's setups. And then I think to myself, no, wait, the problem in my life is not the fact that I don't have the perfect tool. The problem is I just don't have the discipline to sit down and write 2000 words every day. <laughs> so <laughs> once, <laughs> once I can do that, then at that point, I can start worrying about organizing it and having the perfect tag hierarchical structure for organization. But yeah, no, this is a, a trap that I'm, I'm fully aware that I, I often fall into, but I'm trying to get better at it. There is a balance, though, because like the Aura Ring, for instance, which we've talked about a little bit, that does encourage me to drink less at night because I know it ruins my sleep and go to sleep earlier. So some tools can push that, but they can't do all of it. I think so. I think Notion was one of those for me where when I started using it, it just immediately made the whole process of organizing videos with my team like instantly more manageable. I guess it was more like the Trello functionality of it that I was using. Having a video start off as an idea and then turn into a draft and then turn into editing and then ready for filming and just having an app that made that process easy enough meant that me and my team were now thinking a lot harder about each video that we were putting out and there seemed to be a process behind it. Whereas prior to that, we were trying to use Google Docs and just kind of ad hoc organizing things on Slack. So I think having an app in that sense was helpful. But in most other cases, I think uh, the app is just a, an accessory to the, to the habit. Oh, say that one more time. Plus, I love hearing your accent, you know that. <laughs> the app is just an accessory to the habit. I thought that sounded pretty good. Yeah, that sounded damn. Tweet that shit out, dude. Oh, damn, I should. Yeah, I'm trying to get better at using Twitter. <laughs> one thing I want to stick on this topic. So I was going to say this for the end of our conversation, but productivity in books, people love it. I love it. You love them. And I think what's interesting is you said earlier briefly, you're like, yeah, I'm still taking this guy's webinar or I'm still reading this book or I'm still trying this new tool. And I think sometimes people assume that you stop once you get to some level of notoriety. So I admire that. And I think that that's, that's probably why you're, you're at the place you're at, at least on the, on the YouTube side. And I'm sure professionally too. Yeah, potentially. Although I feel like because I now make videos about productivity apps, it's therefore in my interest <laughs> to try out the latest productivity apps. And like, you know, if everyone's talking about Rome and I'm not using Rome, I'm leaving views on the table as it were. And so <laughs> it's less about trying to find the personal thing for myself and more like trying to put myself in the shoes of a person looking at software and wondering what, what to go for. Which productivity tools do you think have significantly changed your output, like dramatically? And it's, it's, you're still using it to this day. So I'd say Notion is top of the list and Bear is probably second just because it, it's such a nice writing experience that actually encourages me to write. Those are the only two I can really think of. I suppose the Kindle app as well, but I guess that doesn't really count. So of all the stuff you've done, out of all the videos and all the tools you've tried, really two have kind of made the difference? Yeah, and I'm not even sure if those two have made the difference in themselves. Like, I think Notion made a difference in terms of the Trello functionality, but to be honest, I could have used Trello or Asana or Basecamp or, or anything that would have done the same thing. And I think Bear just, it's such a pleasure to open up and to just kind of tap away on my iPad. I think that's probably the one that's actually most encouraged me to actually use it. Things 3 is soon getting onto that list just because it's such a joy to use. And 
what I started doing now in an, in an attempt to get better at using Twitter is anytime I listen to a podcast, I'll just kind of write out some notes on it and then tweet it as a thread, just like there and then. Because before I would always think, oh, you know, I should have a page on my website where I have my favorite podcast and have notes on my favorite podcast. But I kept on dreaming of this future and it never arrived. And so now I'm thinking, you know what, I just want to tweet this. And so, for example, if I'm driving to work and I get to work maybe five minutes early, I'll sit in the car and just take some notes using things as like a to-do item as to kind of planning my tweet out. And then when I have a few minutes at work, I'll just copy and paste it into Twitter because I don't trust, you know, the Twitter web app or the Twitter app to save my stuff for me. Whereas I fully trust things that whatever I type in it will still be there in two hours time, whether or not my Wi-Fi goes down. I think a lot of people want the hack. But what I'm curious about is how did you get the habits? You know, maybe some suggestions or thoughts of how you've built these habits, because I think that's something that all of us are, you know, want to keep improving on. I suppose it depends what we're talking about, right? Because I still struggle a lot with, for example, taking care of my health and exercising regularly. And I know that's something that you're quite into. So I'd be curious to get your kind of thoughts on that, because I'm in, I'm in a way looking for a hack to encourage me more to, I don't know, eat better and, and exercise more regularly. I suppose when it comes to things like producing videos or producing emails each week, I guess the thing that I tell people is that it starts off as a sort of like forcing yourself to do it because you can see the kind of long-term trajectory. And you sort of know in the back of your mind that if you do this thing with consistency and have faith that over time, things will just get better, then it'll just grow. But then at some point, the momentum starts to kind of build by itself. And so with my email newsletter, you know, in the first few months of doing it, it was a case of, okay, no one's really reading this. What do I do? But now, I don't know, I've got like 30,000 something people reading it, and I know I have to do it each week. And so the momentum sort of dries itself. And equally now, it's like, it's no effort at all for me to, you know, come home from work and make a YouTube video because I've got the momentum. I've got these, I don't know, 600,000 people that are, you know, supposedly waiting for a new video. So I think starting off with requiring motivation or discipline and then moving on to momentum, that kind of sustains it automatically. One thing that we were, me and my friends were talking about last night, uh, my buddy Neville from Copywriting Course was talking about how musicians make all these songs. And only a few of the songs ever get popular, but you don't see all the hundreds and hundreds of songs. And so what he's kind of telling me is just keep going. I actually looked up some of the numbers like Drake, only 25% of his songs get popular. Beyonce, 24%. And Red Hot Chili Peppers was like 5%. But I guess one thing with, with you specifically is that when you started the YouTube or you started, let's just take the email list as an example. How did you keep going and build that habit when there was no one there? Yeah, I think so. I'd been trying to start a blog since like 2016. I think I read Austin Cleon's Show Your Work and I was like, right, I'm going to start a personal blog. That was around the time where I was really drinking the entire Kool-Aid of the whole build a personal brand by producing content online. And that year I published like three blog posts just because I felt as if I was shouting into the void. But with the email newsletter, as soon as I got some people on the list, I kind of felt this in a way, this responsibility, which is probably me kind of self-aggrandizing it a bit, because really, like, <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to care. But in my mind, I was like, right, you know, these people are signed up. They're waiting for me to send an email. Therefore, I have to send the email. Like, it wasn't an option. And so I consider it not an optional thing. For example, like two weeks ago, it got to like one o'clock in the morning and I was just binging Netflix for the first time in ages. And I completely forgot that it was a Sunday and I had to, I had to put out the newsletter. But as soon as I found out, I was like lying in bed. I was like, oh, shit, it's a Sunday. <laughs> so I had to get out of bed and write the email newsletter. <laughs> and I think if I'd allowed myself to skip that week, that would have been a slippery slope. I guess you're familiar with uh, Matt Diavella, uh, the YouTuber? Yeah, I follow a little bit of his stuff. Yeah, so he's got this thing called uh, the two-day rule, which is that you're allowed to skip day one day, but you're not allowed to skip two days in a row. And if you ever do skip two days in a row, then that's the beginning of the end. And so I kind of treat that a similar strategy for my videos and for my newsletter that, okay, this is not an option. I'm not allowed to miss this. And I think that just about works. 
it's interesting with the uh, with the responsibility. I think one thing that you you said as well is the consistency. You said, well, every Friday I'm going to do this. I, I know with my own personal content, two things where I've struggled is just staying consistent. Like I can go and do this and, and I'll do it for a year and it, it does well or pretty well. And then I'm like, ah, this sucks. I'm tired. I don't have like a million followers. I'm going to give up. And I've really been working since I've kind of really gotten kickstarted and, and more motivated to share and help people in the past few months since Corona happened. It's figuring out how to make it sustainable. Because I think everyone starts a YouTube channel. Like everyone's like, oh, I'm going to start it, you know, on sendfox.com. I'm going to start a newsletter or I'm going to start posting. And they could do that for a month. But can they do it consistently for two years? And so maybe talk a little bit for yourself. Yeah, this is something that I, I get asked about a lot. Like, how do you sustain this, this motivation? And I'd be intrigued to hear what, what you think about this. Because for me, a big part of kind of why I do this stuff is because I'm trying to optimize for a future where my day job is, is optional, where I don't have to kind of be a full-time doctor if I don't want to just to pay the bills. And so a big part of why is kind of trying to get to this future of having these multiple streams of passive income and, and so on. And I know that, yeah, as Gary Vaynerchuk says, that one of the easiest ways to get to that point is to just create a load of free content consistently over a very long period of time, build up an audience, and then you can kind of tap into that audience for monetization as and when you need it. So that's kind of what's what it is for me. And then the whole kind of when you release a video, it, people seem to like it and it's fun. And that kind of that cycle sustains itself. But I'm curious for you, right? Because you've presumably gotten beyond the point where you need to worry about, you know, trying to become financially independent or whatever. Like what still drives you to, for example, you know, do a podcast like this or continue producing content for your YouTube channel? Yeah, that's something that, that I've been exploring a lot lately. And one of the things that I did, I think I mentioned it when I was chatting with you on your show, is that I just was trying to reflect on really what fulfills me. And I think that's honestly one of the best ways everyone can have an amazing work, which is just what stuff fulfills you and how do I do more of that during my week? Like for me, I don't have to work. So what do I want to work on for free? Or what do I want to do for fun? So like on a Saturday, it's one o'clock and I'm hanging out with you. And this is like, I was looking forward to it. I was like, oh man, there's going to be fun stuff to talk about. And I think it's really interesting. How do you turn your interest into a business? One thing that I'm really trying to be intentional and self-aware around is which parts are burning me out. So like yesterday I was recording two videos and out of the three to four hours of making the videos, I spent three hours on the tech, trying to get the software working and all this stuff. And one hour actually talking and creating the content. And so that burns me out. What I realized though is like, I need to hire someone in the next week or two to help just come over and review all my tech stuff. And so I don't have to think about it again. I've tried to be more intentional about what other things are taking that energy away. And so in the week, it's like, how do I spend my time in the fulfillment zone? Things that fulfill me are this conversation or sharing things I'm learning from Sumo Group and, and our different companies. And the things like scheduling guests or the thing of like trying to do collaborations or the things that I just am not interested in, I'm really trying to reduce. And I think for people starting out, it's like, well, maybe they don't have that luxury, but they still can do some of that on weekends and nights and so forth. I think one thing that, that you said related to that that was really fascinating, and I don't know if enough people think about it, is you said, and this is really great, there is a clear path to financial freedom following this model. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it feels almost like cheating. No, no, no. But I think what, what's different is, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is suffering and rewards. So I, I mentioned that book, Courage to be Disliked, which I highly recommend. and. I'm thinking about like, what do I want to suffer for? What is worth suffering? Because some suffering I just don't want, it doesn't, there's not the reward. But if you know the reward is I can have financial options and all I have to do is this suffering and then I'll get it, I'm going to go do that. And I like that. I think, you know, it's a great way that you've put it out there. I hope that inspires a lot of the people to start the YouTube and that helped you probably stick with it because you're like, well, if I want that outcome, I have to put in this work. 
it also helps to like if you can find something that you don't find to be that suffering if that makes sense like i find it like really freaking annoying having to set up the cameras and the lights every time which is what makes me think oh i can't wait to move into a bigger place where i just have my own studio because that's not like the fun bit of doing the video whereas i just love hearing my voice talking to a camera <laughs> it's, just, it's just fantastic like the editing side of it used to be fun and then kind of once you've been doing 200 videos at that point the editing starts to get a bit dry so then i managed to outsource the editing of it and so i don't really view it as as suffering and i think occasionally i'll get messages from instagram being like hey you know it's, it's easy for you to say about all this passive income and stuff i'm not the sort of person who could put myself on on youtube how do i make money without being on youtube <laughs> and i'm like well you know it's, it's not for everyone and i like the thing that you said when when you were on my channel last was it last week which was, it's all about trying to monetize your passions in a sort of sustainable way. And so whatever you're passionate about, you can find a way to create content online for that, as Gary Vaynerchuk would say. And then it's just a, a path that's laid out for you that if you can just kind of do it consistently and well over a long period of time, why wouldn't you get to a point where you can then start monetizing the audience if you need to? Well, I think even for the people that say that they don't want to put themselves out there, they can always be an employee. One thing I, I was even, I was actually journaling earlier this morning is, what are the fear phrases that people say to stop themselves from starting a business? Oh, interesting. Uh, what was on your list? One of them, so the, I got an Instagram DM and this uh, girl said, hey, I have three businesses I'm, I'm running. Do you think I should do all three or just one of them? And what she actually is saying is that I'm scared because I don't know if any of them are going to work. So I'm just going to do kind of half-ass on all of them and none will work. And that to me is a fear phrase from holding people back. Some of the other ones that were pretty interesting that I was thinking about They've spent a lot of money, but they haven't made any money starting a business. This is one of the, my favorite ones. Is they try to sell or when they're starting a business online, they sell to everyone, but people that know them. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so they don't want anyone to know what they're doing. They want to make it harder on themselves and they want to avoid rejection publicly. Even for the person that messaged you and says, I don't want to do YouTube, podcast doesn't show your face. Yeah. Email newsletters on sendfox.com or whatever other service people want to use. There's no face, no. Substack, whatever that is. Starting a YouTube channel and putting your face on it is on one extreme end of the spectrum. There are so many other ways to do the whole content creating, putting yourself out there, sharing your work publicly. And one thing that I just recommend to everyone is please read Show Your Work by Austin Kleon, because I had so many qualms about putting myself online. Even with starting a blog, I was like, oh, you know, I've got this domain, aliabdal.com. I registered it way back in, in high school. And what sort of person would be so narcissistic so as to have their own domain name and to write on it? Like, who cares what I have to say? And then I read Show Your Work and I was like, all right. It's all about sharing my process publicly and the people that want to follow along will follow along and the people that don't won't see it anyway. So it's all good. Well, I really like what you've kind of pushed back on me and you said it's not suffering. So, and I, I think that's where I'm, I'm really wanting to spend more of my time in the content creation or education or infotainment, as we like to call it, in how do I spend my time more in the joy zone? If I could do this every day, all day, I, I would just do this. That's what I'm, I'm trying to or doing my best to spend more time there and avoiding the three hours of the webcam not working. It's kind of the same for me, actually, like now having done the me talking to a camera on YouTube for the last three years, an area that I want to go into much more is having conversations like this, where we're both recording on our ends and then potentially being able to turn that into into their own videos. Because I love the idea, again, this is from Gary Vaynerchuk's playbook, which is you create this pillar piece of content, like a long two hour, like one to two hour long podcast or interview or whatever. And then you can chop out snippets from that and craft it into a narrative for a YouTube video. Or you can chop that turn into a tweet or Instagram story or whatever. The first time I tried this was a few months ago. I was interviewing an, an author of a book called The Unfair Advantage, which is like a business book about what makes people successful. We ended up having like a three hour long chat. He came over to my place because he was touring all the UK universities way before lockdown. 
And then I sent that interview to one of my team members and he's picked out like sort of about five minutes worth of sound bites. And we crafted a really compelling video of that. That was fantastic because I got to chat with this guy for three hours and just chatted about whatever. And then someone else went through that conversation, took bits out of it, and then we turned it into a video. So this idea of repurposing this pillar content. Thank you, Gary Vee, for that advice. Yeah. I mean, that's something that we've been experimenting with. You know, we do this as a video, but it also goes to a podcast and then we put it on Instagram TV and then we put some of the clips on YouTube and we do it natively. I think the native part is the part that a lot of people miss out on. I literally realized it this morning talking with some friends is that you have to cater to the medium. And so on Twitter, I put out a lot of, you know, maybe I'll put out a video or I'll put out a picture of like a marketing thing. And that does okay. And everyone has to figure out what works, but you have to say what works in this medium. And, and for Twitter, it, it is a lot of the quips. Yeah. <laughs> it's quip central. It's like, you know, it's, it's meant for the Trumps and the, the people with quips that people want to retweet. And so there's something to be said to say, what's the medium of choice that you're one great at? But also looking to some extent what's working in that medium. And so you can see on Twitter, that's, that is the stuff like Sahil from Gumroad, who I love. One, he's really great, but his stuff is interesting and it's quippy. And it's like, well, why don't I experiment with that? You do that interesting as well with your YouTube stuff, where you're known for productivity, you're known for medical school, but you also experiment. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's another thing I'm, I'm trying to be more comfortable with. Are you familiar with a, with a YouTuber called Peter McKinnon? Yes. He's huge now, kind of like nearly five, like five million subscribers, absolutely exponential rise to fame over the last few years. And he started off as like doing photo and video tutorials, but a lot kind of vlogs alongside that. And then occasionally he would do an experimental piece like uh, what's in my bag and what's, you know, my everyday carry and what does my wallet look like? He talked in a video about how he used to get a lot of pushback about that. You know, comments would be like, bro, where's the next Photoshop tutorial? When's the next After Effects tutorial? And he, he was saying in this video that when it's your own baby, you like it's your own YouTube channel. You don't want to get to a point where you feel like the audience is typecasting you and forcing you to make a certain type of content if that's not necessarily what you want to make. So his kind of appeal to creators everywhere was feel free to experiment. It's okay. It's fine. Who cares if those videos don't get as many views as your educational video about After Effects? Like that's fine, provided you're kind of flexing that creative muscle on your own part. And so when I saw that video, I was like, oh my God, it's like he's speaking directly to my soul. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to be okay with doing a video about books or something because it's not directly related to what I was doing, but it's kind of the direction I want to be heading. Did you get off work today? I had the day off today. Yeah, Saturday. I do. You know, a lot of people, and, and I was thinking about you earlier, and I, or this morning, I was in bed watching videos of you. Oh, well. <laughs> the oh, first yeah. time I've heard that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it dawned on me that not only are you a, because, you know, a, a lot of people, when they're starting a business or they want to be a content creator, they're like, well, I have this family, or I have this day job, or I have this thing. And I was like, Ali is not only a medical student, which is like, I don't know how many hours a week you guys are crazy busy. And you're also making high quality videos at the same time. Plus, it seems like you have a personal life from at least what you put out publicly. Yeah, that's the impression I'd like to give. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was curious your thoughts on that when people say that or more just like how that story has been for yourself. I graduated med school in like, like two years ago. So I'm, t I'm technically a junior doctor now. It's sort of a weird system. It's sort of in between med school and being a proper resident like you would in, in America. But back when I was in med school, I actually used to take a lot of time off uh, just to make videos. <laughs> so everyone kind of thinks that med school is this like really hard slog. But if you can study for your exams efficiently and you know how to play the game, then you realize that actually if I'm on my cardiology placement, there's a handful of things I want to get out of this on a given day. I want to sort of specifically find an area that I'm weak on. I want to work that. I want to work on that kind of like the 10,000 hours of purposeful practice where you, you're actively working on your weaknesses rather than just, just kind of practicing a song that you know already. 
And so what a lot of medical students, I think, make the mistake of doing is they just spend way too much time in the hospitals, not actively learning and just hoping that stuff will just enter their system via osmosis or whatever. Whereas my thing and a few of my friends, we were like, right, we're going to go in for two hours. We're going to go in with a very distinct aim. We're going to do the thing. And then we're going to go sit in the doctor's common room and edit a video or whatever. So that was how I used to do it in med school. Um, <laughs> whereas, I th yeah, I think a lot of people have this idea of, like, oh, it must be so hard. But now that I'm kind of working full time, it's a little bit more tricky because I physically can't, you know, not go to work or can't come home early. There's a, a technique that I call productive downtime, which is that when I'm at work, let's say I've just seen a patient and I've taken their bloods and I've got to wait an hour for the bloods to come back. And let's say that there's no emergencies happening there and then that need my immediate attention. For that hour, you know, I'm just kind of sitting in the on the ward in front of the computer and just kind of doing nothing. And so why not open up Notion or open up Evernote web app and start kind of planning out a video? And so when I'm at work from eight till five or sometimes eight in the morning till nine in the evening, these little moments help me plan out videos a lot more than I would be able to do if I treated my work as this kind of 13 hour block where I physically couldn't do anything else. Do you think that people just don't want that freedom? Like they want the idea of it, but they don't want to do the work for it? I've been thinking about this a fair bit. There's this daily newsletter called The Hustle, which is all like a tech newsletter. And they've got this podcast, uh, which is very good, called My First Million, about how people made their first million, which you should feature on, by the way, because you'd have a, a good story to tell. But they were interviewing, I think they might have been interviewing Ariana Huffington. And they came across the analogy of uh, window openers versus door knockers. And it's a bit weird, but like the window openers are the ones who look through a window and they see their expected outcome on the other side. And then they step through the window. Whereas the door knockers are the ones who would see a closed door and they would just knock on it, open the door and see what's on the other side without knowing in advance. And the theory was that increasingly most of the rewards in the modern day go to the door people as opposed to the window people. And when it comes to things like creating content on the internet or, or starting a business, it's very much a door situation. Like even though you've got this Gary Vaynerchuk playbook of just release free content and monetize your audience over time, even though you've got that playbook, it's by no means a, a certainty and therefore in order to put in the grind, you have to be open to not knowing what's on the other side. I put out a video last week talking about kind of various sources of passive income. And that led to a huge influx of emails from people being like, you know, dear sir, please guide me on step by step exactly what I should do to get to where you are. And I, <laughs> I wasn't really sure how to reply to these guys because I was like, well, that's not really the point. The point is you have to have the faith and the consistency to do the thing without necessarily knowing what's exactly on the other side. So I think that's a big part of it. I think also, you, you know, you're really stuck with me. It's also find the thing that you enjoy getting stuck with. Like this type of work is work. I mean, you're literally getting paid to share and, and make videos and, and explore life and, and things that you're interested in. Yeah, it's absolutely obscene. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how it happened. But <laughs> yes, I, fully, I say it all the time. Like, I don't know how I got so lucky that I get paid to like promote awesome products. Like, I can't believe that's our business. The two questions I was curious is, how did you find your niche or your voice around all these topics? Because I think that's something that a lot of us are trying to figure out. It's like, what do I talk about? What do I, if I want to do this, this content plan and maybe walk us through, like, how did you get to the 600,000 subscribers in about two years? Again, I was just following Gary V's playbook here. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> Essentially, the, the, the format is, <laughs> yeah, the simple format is you start off really, really, really freaking niche or uh, niche as the Americans would call it. And then you expand your niche over time. So Initially, I started making videos about how to pass this specific medical school entrance exam for people applying to four medical schools in the UK. There were only like four medical schools in the UK using this exam. And I made content about how to do well in that exam because I'd been tutoring it for years with my side company. And then I was like, okay, so that was one tiny target market. 
I then started making videos on medical school interview prep. And then that targets everyone who's applying to med school in the UK mm. because it's all the same kind of stuff that you learn. And I had some specific videos about Oxford and Cambridge because they've got weird scientific kind of interview processes. And then I was like, okay, so I've got this niche of people who are kind of medical school applicants applying to some of these top universities. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. I can now start vlogging life as a Cambridge medical student because, you know, Cambridge is famously a good university and this is the sort of content these people would want to see. So that was a very, very niche audience. And then over time, I was like, okay, I need to make a video that now encompasses students in general. So I made a video about kind of my desk setup for that I use as a student. And then I made some videos on how to study for exams in general. And I was like, okay, cool. Now we've got the student market. Then the one video that made my channel take off completely was a video about how I take notes on my iPad Pro. So that was like from a student's perspective, but it got the tech crowd in. And then suddenly, like basically overnight, my channel transformed from a entirely student-focused channel to a sort of half-student, half-tech. And I was like, yes, this is the dream, because that was kind of where I wanted to get to ultimately. But I knew that I had to start off very, very, very niche because if you're just making a YouTube video for the first time, you can't just make a video about 10 productivity tips because no one cares. There's a guy actually called Shu Omi, who recently I discovered. He's on about like 3,000 subscribers. He's made a handful of videos. He's, he's been doing YouTube for about, about a year now. And I was looking through his channel just because I, I wanted to test this hypothesis. And his initial videos were how to brew a matcha tea latte and you know how to be more productive at work and stuff. So very, very general, broad audience. And then a few months ago, he started making really, really specific videos about Rome research and like fully nerding out on it to the level where his videos are some of the best on the internet about Rome research, just because no one else was doing that. I DM'd him on Twitter being like, bro, I've got a theory that your channel only started to take off once you started making these Rome videos. And he was like, yeah, I had basically zero views before then. And I suspect it's the fact that it was he was now targeting a very niche audience of tech early adopters who care about note taking on Rome, as opposed to everyone who cares about how to make a matcha tea latte or how to be more productive. And so I think once you start off niche, you can then expand out over time, which is uh, the Gary Vee model. Dude, stop saying it. It's the Ali Abdal <laughs> model. It's the Ali Abdul model. I love it, man. I'm going to speak it to the world. So I love the niche approach. I watched your first videos, like the first one you ever made and a few of those other earliest ones. They're pretty similar to today. I thought it'd be like horribly worse, but they're pretty similar. So I am curious, how do you think and how do you structure your videos? And then the other side of that is that your marketing is really, I mean, everyone's like niche marketing. You literally did it. And so I guess how much time do you actually think about marketing or promoting? Because I think a lot of people have, you know, I've put out a video, here's my productivity hacks, and it just kind of dies in the water. So I'm curious how you think about marketing with your video. To answer the second one first, I don't really think about marketing at all. Like, I don't really know what marketing means in terms of on the video front. The way I think of it is essentially all I want to do is put out one or two or three decent videos a week. And then over time, I just hope that the algorithm or the gods or whatever will ultimately reward me because that's kind of what the point of the YouTube algorithm is. It's to surface the right video to the right viewer at the right time. And so if I can actually make decent content, then the marketing almost takes care of itself, at least on YouTube. And doing things like collaborations and stuff helps. And actually the first kind of big boost that my channel had was from doing a collaboration. But I think there is a lot to be said for just kind of putting your head down and putting in the work to just kind of make a quality product and trust that if you build it, they will come famously, uh, which seems to not really apply anymore. Like people have different opinions on this. But then in terms of how I think about the videos, honestly, I just imitate other people. So at the start, I told myself I want to be the Peter McKinnon of studying. And so I tried to model my videos based on his and like all of my vlogs about life as a Cambridge med student were essentially ripoffs of, of his kind of having a bit of A-roll where you talk to the camera, 
And then switching to 100 frames per second, so you can have slow motion B-roll with a bit like music in the background. And through that imitation over time, I feel I sort of developed my own style because his style is very kind of high energy and sort of charismatic. I feel mine is a bit more nerdy, a bit more, I'd like to think, thoughtful. And so I sort of Peter McKinnon plus elements of my own personality. And then now the person who I'm trying to model in a way is Matt Diavella. He's a, he's a filmmaker. He's made a, a Netflix documentary about minimalism. All of his, his videos are like the gold standard of a cinematic, decent YouTube video, which I guess isn't even really a YouTube video because it's like basically a, a film slash mini documentary in 10 minutes. It's entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm learning a lot from him about, okay, cool. He's, he's switching up the A-roll there. He's using a voiceover there. He's using an overhead camera there. And so I've started imitating aspects of that. And I think the more you imitate, the more you kind of develop your own style over time. How much time are you spending learning? How much time a week are you actually, because you do create, right? You put, I think, do you put two videos out a week? Yeah, two or three these days in lockdown, otherwise one. But you're watching videos, you're reading books, you're trying new tools. How much time do you spend around that? I mean, in fairness, this is pretty much the only thing I do with my time. I'd come home from work and then I will get a takeaway because previously I used to think that cooking was a waste of time, but now I'm trying to get into cooking more. And I just spend all evening either making a video or planning a video or watching other videos with an intent to learn from them. And then when I'm driving in the car each day, I'd be listening to podcasts at double speed, including yours, which is how I listen to lots of episodes of your podcast. And I think there's a lot to be gained because your podcast isn't specifically about how to grow on YouTube, but there's still so much insight that people can learn about how to grow on YouTube from just knowing generally good marketing tips. There was a few interviews you said that you did with guys about how they weren't using their mailing list properly and how they should be doing this, that, and the other. And they were like, oh my God, yeah, you're totally right. And I was like, oh, I can actually apply this to my own mailing list or to my own YouTube channel in a different sort of way. So I guess it's constant learning. But again, like I enjoy it. Like I'd rather listen to a podcast in the car than listen to music. And so I think I've been really lucky to stumble into this field where all of the stuff that's associated with it is stuff that I find quite fun anyway. It's interesting because you basically make videos which you, it seems like you enjoy, it sounds like you do, and you have a certain hobby that you enjoy, and then you put those together, and you just do it every week. You make it too simple. Should everyone just copy you in the Ali Abdal model? I think so. I think the trick is actually just to, to find a few repeatable pieces of content that you can do. Like TV shows get big because once you've figured out the formula, you then repeat the formula and you just kind of churn out over time. And I think... The difficulty with being a creator of, of any sort is if you're trying to come up with original stuff each week. Again, Gary Vaynerchuk would say... Just say Ali Abdul says it. I document, don't create. <laughs> <laughs> and so I document, I don't create. And everything I do is, is just based on documentation. So a few months ago, I was thinking, okay, I feel like my channel's getting a bit stale. I've been repeating a lot of content recently. What's something new I can do? And then I realized, oh, I should do this series called Book Club, where I summarize highlights and insights from popular nonfiction books. And I was like, oh, this is incredible. Because if I do it once, I've got at least 150 books in my Kindle library that I would be happily, I'd be able to talk about for an hour. So I can just turn those into videos. Now that's 150 videos sorted. So that's basically 10 years worth of content just off this one idea that I can make this a repeatable series. And so I think when it comes to people starting out anything for the first time, I think thinking hard about what can you do to make the process as repeatable as possible, because you don't want to have to think about coming up with a new video idea every week, because that would just be a total drag. Well, I think it's interesting that you noticed you were getting stale. You felt it. And I think one thing maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit is that you didn't just make the same video. Like your older videos do look different. You do have to say, how can I keep improving this? And I think that's sometimes even with myself, I'm like, all right, this is it. And it's like, no, that's exactly the time that you probably have to be a little bit aware and say, all right, how do I just keep iterating and improving each week or each month or whatever, whenever you notice that? 
the way I, I sometimes think of this is sort of like a building a moat. And this is again a, a startup analogy. Like, what's the moat that you're building around your own your own company, which would make other quote competitors find it hard to kind of take your customers? And if you apply that theory to YouTube, it doesn't quite translate because in YouTube it's not really competitors. It's more like in a way on YouTube, the rising tide lifts all the boats. Like if there's another productivity student channel that pops up, chances are my videos will get recommended on theirs and vice versa. So in a way, we'll both kind of cross-pollinate one another. But the way that I think of it on YouTube is, okay, I'm all for encouraging people to start their own channels and stuff, but I kind of want to be the gold standard YouTube channel in my niche of productivity student medical type stuff. And so what can I do every week, every month to push that boundary? And one very easy way of doing it is once you start making money, you can then reinvest that money into buying fancier cameras. And fancier cameras are a very easy way to improve your video quality. <laughs> and so, for example, I've got like a $7,000 camera set up right now. 7000 Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that any other student wanting to get into YouTube will think, okay, I want to start a YouTube channel, but there's no way I can afford that, which is ideal. But people like Matt Diavella and Thomas Frank, they're using Canon C200s, which are $15,000 cinema cameras. Uh, Peter McKinnon's not using a red camera, which is like 35,000. MKBHD uses a $50,000 camera setup. Like there is still more to be done in the <laughs> production value sphere. But in a way, it's a very easy way to continuously be, be pushing the bar because A, it's really fun just nerding out about tech. And B, once you've got that privilege where you can afford this stuff and call it a business expense, you're building the moat even further around your content. Hiring team members is another one that I've been learning a lot about recently because now I can churn out three videos a week without me having to edit them. Whereas, again, someone new trying to join the same space would find it a lot harder to do that. So that's kind of how I think about it these days. Like, how do I consistently make myself the gold standard? Dude, you're so good. The Ali Abdal, dude, that like that is the, the new program people need to subscribe to. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Okay. It's funny where our minds go. And I love tech. You know, that's why both of us do this stuff. I mean, it's what we love. And I feel very blessed for that. When you said when I started making money on YouTube with all your content creation, you're like, your first thought was making a nicer camera. My first thought is, oh, how can I spend that on marketing? <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> but I guess it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Like increasing production value of your videos is in a way boosting your marketing. No, no, no. I think they're both great. I didn't even think of it as a differentiator, right? But it is like a lot of my videos look like shit. I look at some of these older ones. And so I do have a, I think a Sony 6400 coming in a few days. Oh, nice. You know, it's my gateway drug. And I think a lot of people, honestly, your iPhones, a lot of the first ones on YouTube that I, I started doing, I just got on my phone. And I think a lot of people overcomplicate it. The thing that I, I had a big realization for why I stopped doing YouTube two years ago was that I made it a production. Like I had to find this filmmaker, my buddy Brandon, who I love, and he actually, he now runs AppSumo Video. But he'd be like, all right, we have to get a video and we have to do this and we have to do all these things. And I was like, man, all that stuff stops me from what I want to do, which is just share. And so I think it's also figuring out which part is holding back from it. Right. And so now that I'm doing it, I'm like, you know what, what if I just instead of this webcam, I get a nicer camera that makes it a little bit easier. And it's been fun to nerd out on all the new new software for video like Ecamm and StreamYard. And, you know, you sent me your scenes, which I do appreciate. And, you know, that screen flow. I don't know. It's just, it, it has been interesting. But I, I think sometimes we jump to the toys. And I, I think part yeah. of it has been it has been rewarding to build up. Right. Versus just like, yeah. like I wanted to I want to buy the new laptop for Apple and I can afford it. But I said, all right, you have to get everything on your checklist done this week. Nice. <laughs> and I, I like that work reward ratio. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's kind of nice because like if we think about how a YouTube channel grows, in a way, everyone's journey on YouTube is their own. It's their own kind of unique experience. And so when you start off with like zero subscribers, every new subscriber you get, it's like such a joyful feeling. Like, oh my God, I'm now on 18 subscribers. Yes, I can't believe there's 18 people in the world who want to watch my videos. 
And then as you upgrade your camera setup, you can, in a way, you feel yourself leveling up. There's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is, I think there are so many ways in which life is actually like a video game. And I think that leveling up in the video game of life is one of the most satisfying things that we can do. So whether it's me kind of just like managing to learn a new song on the piano or upgrading my camera setup, it's all part of leveling up. But my point is that that's like an individual journey. And so if you took someone who was a brand new YouTuber and put them in MKBHD's $50,000 studio, they probably wouldn't know what to do with it because that's not the level they're pitching at. Whereas you start off with your iPhone, you get an A6400, you get an A7 III, you get a cinema camera. <laughs> Over time, you realize you spent 100 grand on, on cameras, but you're leveling up as you go along. And I think that's one of the really satisfying parts of it. We are biased with luck, I would say. I don't know your story, but I had parents. My dad was in tech. My mom was really persistent. You know, at the end of the day, you have to put in the work to get these things and to be the person, no matter what upbringing you have. Some, some of us did have luck with where we were born, but it is a lot of effort. Because, you know, I talked with Seth's Bike Hacks. He's the number one bike YouTuber. You ever watch him? No, I, I'm not familiar at all with BikeTube. Oh, he makes his Seth's Bike Hacks. He makes phenomenal videos. It's a million subscribe plus channel about mountain biking. I, I interviewed him two years ago. You know, when I first thought, I was like, dude, I can't believe it. You're making lots of money making bike videos. And he was a former filmmaker. One of the things he said that really stuck with me is like, how much time do you think I'm biking? And how much time do you think I'm actually working on these videos? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and obviously, I think probably he's hired now and things like that. But it, it really stuck with me is that, you know, as a content creator, you're only seeing the dish. They don't necessarily see what's in the kitchen. Two things with you around that that I, I want to know more about is how do you structure your videos? Because they're beautifully simple. I'm learning from you. I watch your video. I'm like, I want to keep watching. I like how it's structured. It doesn't seem overly complicated, but it's enticing me as a viewer. So I wanted to learn more about that and also how you've started building out your team and, and now making it a, you know, from a hobby to a business. Let's do part one and then part two. Okay, so part one, structuring videos. So this is something I'm, I'm actively trying to get better at. Before, the way I would structure my videos is I would imagine, okay, let's say I'm in real life, I'm trying to teach someone how to do this thing because most of my videos are educational rather than entertaining. And so the objective is to teach someone something. And so I kind of think in my head, okay, how would I teach this in real life? And what are the reasonable chunks that I can split this up into? And if at all possible, I will split everything into three, into a list of three, somehow it's got to be done. So like a few months ago, I made a new Skillshare class about how to study for exams. And I spent like a solid three hours with this list of 50 videos thinking, right, I need to shoehorn all of these into a three part structure. Then I was like, oh, fantastic, right, we've got understanding, memorizing, and focus. And that is the three-part structure. And it's a little bit contrived in some parts, like some bits may not necessarily, but if you say, right, guys, here is a three-part structure to how to study for your exams, study, memorize, understand, memorize, focus, people will know what you're talking about. And so I think about the three-part structure quite a lot. But that's only kind of level one of how to make a good video. Level two of how to make a good video is something I'm actively working on now, which is how do you do the same thing, but how do you turn it into a compelling story? Because we all grow up and love listening and hearing stories. And a lot of the biggest YouTube channels are successful because they manage to have this kind of story-like connection with the viewer. And so I'm in the process of this uh, eight-week sort of live over Zoom course on how to grow a YouTube channel called Video Labs. That was like a $2,000 investment. And I was like, you know what, this, is, this has got to be done. And a big part of it is this thing of how do you craft a more compelling video? How do you tell more of a story? So now we're looking at things like different structures of stories, like the three-act structure and the hero's journey. And that was where I came across A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And that was one of the recommended reading from this course about how to tell a compelling story. And there's another book I'm reading like at the moment called Story Worthy, which is by this guy called Matthew Dix. I had no idea this was a thing, but there are these storytelling competitions that happen everywhere in the world. They're called like Grand Slams. And 
you get people going up without any notes telling a story and they get rated on how good their story is. And this is like a whole industry that I just never before heard about until I started reading this book by Matthew Dix called uh, Storyworthy. And one of the things he says in that, which I've started doing for the last two days and I hope to continue for the next year, is this thing that he calls homework for life. And his homework for life is that every day, at the end of the day, you spend five minutes thinking about what is the most story-worthy component of my day today. And you write that down in like an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet or something. I started writing mine in Notion, obviously. And the point of that is that A, it makes you notice much more where the stories are in your life. And so when it comes to calling on a story, you'd be like, oh, actually, I had that issue with this patient who only spoke Romanian. Therefore, I had to explain a third degree perineal tear after childbirth via a translator on the phone because she only spoke Romanian. That's something that happened to me yesterday. But I wouldn't have thought of it. I wouldn't have given it a second thought had I not been doing this homework for life. And now as sort of I'm, I'm on like chapter four out of like 10 in the book and he's talking and he's now talking about, so we've got this raw component, we've got this snippet that you know might make a good story. How do we craft it into a compelling narrative? And I'm not sure what's coming up next. So this is an area that I'm really trying hard to get better at because storytelling isn't just for YouTube videos. Like if you can tell a good story, you, you're a better podcast guest, you're a better friend, you're a better dating partner. You know, everything in life gets better when you can tell a compelling story. And so when I discovered this book like two nights ago, I was like, oh my God, like I literally had tears in my eyes as to how much my mind was blown by this stuff. So hopefully that answers the question of how do I craft my videos? Like initially starting off just like structuring it like an essay or like a teaching session would be. But now really thinking about what's the story that we're telling? Who is the hero? What's the conflict? What do they ultimately want? And all that. Do you use a teleprompter or do you script out every single thing? Like I'm, I'm trying to keep experimenting and find out what works for me. I've noticed some of the, the ones that have actually been the most well-received it's me just holding the iPhone and talking story. I'm like, all right, that's interesting that those are the ones that are most popular or the audience resonates with. I'm really curious for yours. Yeah, I don't use a teleprompter, but I'm kind of experimenting with it a little bit more. I tend to go with bullet points. I've got, so I, I bullet point my three-part structure and I vaguely know in my head what I'm going to say. And then I tend to mostly freestyle it. Unless it's kind of a narrative video or a video that has lots of scientific evidence in it. In which case, okay, fine. I need to have the studies in front of me so I can cite from them without kind of being factually wrong. But otherwise, I've also noticed that the videos where I go a little bit more off-piste, where I'm open to kind of being a little bit weird on camera or like telling a lame joke or something, like where I'm more myself, those are the videos that tend to resonate more. And that was like a really good realization because when I first got into YouTube, I was really worried because I'm like a massive nerd and into tech and into studying and stuff. And I didn't really have like this effusive, charismatic personality that I thought YouTubers had to have. And so I was really worried about this. I was like, okay, how do I succeed on YouTube? And then I realized over time that actually the, like, we all have our own unique selves, we all have our own unique quirks. And the more we let those come out on camera, the more it gives people another reason why they might like us. And sure, I might not be everyone's cup of tea, your vibe might not be everyone's cup of tea, but that's fine. You know, the, the people that follow you will love you even more because you're being unapologetically yourself rather than trying to put on a more kind of produced persona. Yeah. Your videos from like, let's just take a month ago, you have an, an outline and you kind of look at that outline while you talk to the camera? This is a place where Notion has actually helped. So on Notion, you can create templates. So we've got created this new video template. And in the video template, the first question is, what is the title? The second question is, what is the thumbnail? Because those are the two sort of starting points. Next question is, what is the hook? So what is the, the first kind of 10 seconds of the video going to be that hooks the audience? Next question is, what's the main body? And the final question is, how are we then going to point them to another video or another playlist? Because the way the YouTube algorithm works is that it rewards your videos if they encourage people to stay on the platform for longer. And so all of this stuff about, hey guys, thanks for watching the video. I really hope you found that useful. Please leave a comment down below. Please uh, you know, make sure to like, subscribe. 
that is not very good because what it's doing is it's telling people the video's over and you can now leave. Whereas what we should be doing, and there's loads of kind of numbers behind this, as I, I've learned from these video creators guy, what we should be doing is we should be directly being like, all right, guys, if you enjoyed this video about what's on my Mac, here is a video over here, which is about what's on my iPad. So click on that and I'll see you on the other side. No like, comment, subscribe, none of that kind of BS that used to be big on YouTube in 2015, because everyone knows what liking, commenting and subscribing is on YouTube now. Instead, we want to point them to the next video that they're going to watch. And so with my Notion template, that is filled out. So every time I make a video, I am forced to think, right, what is the 10 seconds that's going to hook their attention? And what is the final 20 seconds that's going to make them click on another video? <laughs> so that's another way that I, I kind of use the app to kind of encourage the right kind of moves. Dude, you're so fucking cool. I love this stuff, man. That's awesome. It's so nice to be able to nerd up about this stuff. Yeah. Someone, because most people in real life don't really care. <laughs> no, well, last night we were having dinner outside of the patio and there was all these crypto guys there. And we we're talking about the new crypto fork and the halvening and all this stuff. And, you know, coming, growing up yeah. in Silicon Valley, that's, that's just normal. That's just what you talk about at, at every meal. And, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, so that's not as common. And it is relieving. It's like, I'm like, ah, you nerds. And I was like, ah, that's me too. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. I agree. One thing that I started doing, and, and this is probably YouTube 101, is it started putting up those end screens. I didn't even know about it. And so what it does for the people listening, if you, you do have a YouTube channel, for all of your videos, you just go into the, the details, click end screen, and it could auto add a thing at the end that's like, it'll have a subscribe thing and have those other videos. I kind of thought they would just do that automatically. I'm a little surprised I have to go add that. So I went to my top 10 videos and just threw those on to, to direct them to another one. But I love your idea too. At the end of my videos say, if you love this video, here's the one to actually go go check out versus letting YouTube decide. Yeah, when you physically point at the end screen and then when you have oh. the end screen, you add it where your finger is pointing. Just This is the stuff that I've been learning from this Video Labs course because they've got like thousands of creators they've worked with. They've run the numbers on this. And they said that a sort of click-through rate on end screens is the single biggest predictor of how many views your video is going to get. A, your objective is to get people to the end, which forces you to craft a compelling video. And B, your objective is to give them a good sales pitch for the next video that they should watch. And if you can do those things, if you can up that click-through rate on end screen, that is the thing that's going to make the algorithm pop for you. Dude, hells yes. You're so dope. You know, I, I generally, you know, what motivates you or what tools do you use? At the end of the day, it's pen and paper. And, you know, what, what you're doing, which I admire and is inspiring for me, is that you're, you're still improving it. You didn't make the videos and say, all right, I stopped. That was good. You're like, all right, well, what's my next level up in these productions? And maybe you recognize it or maybe you don't. How have you approached that with, with the business side, right? You said you have three people helping you. How has that evolved from, you know, just the, the Ali show to the, the Ali empire? So that's been so interesting. So a bit of backstory. So when I was in my second year of university, I started a company aimed at tutoring med school applicants for med school exams. Pretty standard stuff. It's basically what every entrepreneurial Asian in the UK does when they get to med school. They realize, ah, oh, hang on, I want to make a business. I'll make a business teaching other people how to get where I am. So I was like, okay, cool, I'll do that. The thing that I had that sort of, sort of differentiated me at the time in 2013 was that I'd been doing freelance web design since like the age of 12. And so I knew how to make a pretty website. And at the time, it was a lot harder to make a pretty looking website than it is now. Like Squarespace wasn't a thing back in the day. You had to kind of hack around with a WordPress theme for absolutely ages before it looked pretty. Anyway, so I had this business and it's still running. It's been going for the last like seven years. But it was really fun for the first three years of running it because we just kept growing every year. It very quickly got to a point where I couldn't physically teach courses on the weekends anymore because we were getting 2,000 students a year and my time was being actively limited because I was still going through med school. So then it was a case of trying to hire people. And so I found my friends who worked with me and got them to teach some courses. I always had this real fear of delegation. Like I would end up answering all the emails myself, doing everything for the business myself, because I was like, oh, well, you know, no one can do it better than I can. And I've been learning web design for 10 years. Like, what have you been doing, mate? 
so, and then that became such a, it took such a toll on me to spend all my time doing this, this sort of admin stuff that I really didn't have to do. I wasn't very good at it, but I thought that no one else would be able to do it. And so I made a load of mistakes running that business. And so when this YouTube thing started getting big and I read the E-Myth Revisited about management and leadership and team building and standard operating procedures, and I was reading that and thinking, wow, this is incredible. I think I had to go through the experience of failing at it to actually appreciate the power of SOPs and the power of actually being a decent team manager. Whereas before I'd been like, oh, management, oh, who cares about that? It's all, you know, this HR bullshit, like what's going on? <laughs> Whereas now I'm like, oh, okay, you know, this is a skill. This is something I need to improve. And so initially it started out with this uh, guy called Christian, who's now basically a full-time editor. He reached out to me and there's this guy who's sort of a bit of a mentor to me. And he was saying that, look, your revenues are now at the point where you can just about manage a full-time employee. If you take someone else on, this is the point where you should do it because you'll, you'll notice your output can double or triple just by having someone else on board. And at the start, I was like, oh, but I, I can't really afford it. You know, this is really expensive. What's going on? He was like, no, no, trust me, you know, just do it. Just try it for three months and see what happens. And I tried it. And after a month, I was like, oh my God, this is actually the dream because now I don't have to edit my videos anymore. And then the next guy just kind of emailed me out of the blue saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a freelance writer. He also graduated from Cambridge and he was looking for a job because he wants to get into journalism. So he was like, hey, do you have any work that needs doing? I said, oh, actually, now that you mention it, I want to start this book club series. I could do with someone to help compile interviews like this one into snippets and kind of write scripts. So initially he started off working one day a week and that was reasonable, but then kind of coronavirus happened and he lost his other jobs. <laughs> so I just sort of kind of took the plunge and I was like, you know what? He was doing such a great job that it would be nice to have him as a full-timer. So now he's on full-time. So now we've got Christian and Angus, these two guys. And a few weeks ago, I hired someone to be my kind of executive assistant, which is how I came across your video from like three years ago, talking about how to work with, a, with an EA. So I watched that extensively and like started reading some books about it. So it's been a really interesting journey of sort of dabbling in this business stuff, but from the perspective of having failed at it once before and been a terrible manager to now trying to be someone who's better at leading a team. What do you think most people are, are making mistakes on or what's the thing that people could do better with teams? Because at the end of the day, one thing that, you know, our company has around 50 people and we do, you know, eight figures in revenue. I can't do it by myself. Zuckerberg and Facebook has 50,000 people. They have what, like three websites? And so it's either going to be software or people. And I think a lot of people kind of miss out on that. So I mean, what are some of the takeaways that you would do for people wanting to do it as well? I think I'm still very much a beginner in this kind of team kind of journey. The thing that I've just been recommending everyone, like every YouTuber of a certain size that I know would be able to support an editor is like, you know, just get someone to edit your videos because it frees up your own time to do the things which are high leverage for you, i.e. coming up with new content and strategizing and filming rather than editing. Because we all think, oh, you know, no one can edit like I do. My style is unique. But actually, you know, if you really broke it down and made a few screencasts, you realize that actually your style isn't as unique as you think and anyone can really edit your videos. <laughs> it's not that hard. One thing that I struggled with at the beginning was this idea of sort of keeping tabs on what my team's doing. Like a friend of mine would said that, oh, you know, if you've got a remote employee, you've got to get them to install Hopstaff time tracking and Fuck no. take screenshots. Hell no. I was just like, hell no, that seems like the worst thing ever. But then in the back of my mind, every week I'd think, oh, damn, I don't know if Christian's actually been doing the 40 hours that he, I mean, he's, he's getting the job done, but I, I don't know if he's doing stuff. I, I just don't know. So <laughs> that used to be a big source of stress for my life. I don't know how you, how you feel about that. That's a little bit of the world I've been in for years. And I think I've made a lot of mistakes and, and done some things really well. You remind me of my mom, not that you look like her or are her in any way, but every week, literally every week, especially with the coronavirus, she's like, how do you know they're working? If they're working from home, how do you, how do you know? Yeah. <laughs> she says it every week. She's like, do you trust them? And so, you know, I think Derek Sivers said a thing a long time ago, which I always love, which is trust, but verify. 
And I think that that's really a, a great approach in terms of running a company. A few different things that I can recommend for you. Have you read Ricardo Semler's books? No, I've never heard of him. Oh, f- dude, this guy. Oh, sick. Him and then the other book I'd recommend you reading is called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. Oh, okay. These are books on scale. So this is now that you've got something working. And I think what problem is, is people read them when they don't have shit and they think that's going to fix the problem. And I'm like, no, you got to start doing the work. But there's not actually a lot of great content out there about what happens when it gets going. And so from those two books, with Ricardo Similar, he's got a book called Maverick. That's the one I'd recommend. His other book is just as good. I'd read them both. But Maverick, I read it years ago and I still think about it, which is he got the fuck out of the business. They have a boring business. They make like parts for boats or something or like machine, washing machine parts. And so he really talks about how he really stepped out. And one thing that stuck with me is like Eamon is the guy that we've brought on to run AppSumo and he is 5x the business, 6x, 6 to 7x the business with his team and by himself with, with support. And I've never told him what to do. And that's what Ricardo Similar said. He's like, if you ever tell them what to do and you say, you have to do this because I'm the boss, you've lost. And so in the seven or eight years that we've been together, maybe six, I've never said this has to happen. And that was, it was interesting because it's kind of counterintuitive. You're like, well, I'm in charge. It's this company. I have a... But if you do that, you've taken away the power of them wanting to run the business like it, it is their own, which it is, and giving them that empowerment. That's true empowerment. But that also comes at a cost, right? Where you have to be willing to say you're in charge. So that's one thing. In terms of mastering the Rockefeller habits, I don't remember a lot of details of the book, but it, it had a lot of good structures and formats for scale. Great. I've just bought it. It's arriving on Monday. Dude, but that in Maverick, Maverick is, is a game changer. The other thing I did put out of it, did you watch that video? It was like how I run an eight-figure company. No, I haven't seen that one. So I would watch that video. The funny thing is that video was originally going to be a productivity video. Like here's how to type in Gmail and here's how to do this. And I was thinking that's not really unique. And there's more than enough of those out there. But I think there's some structure and things that you can't really learn from a lot of eight or nine-figure companies. There's just not a lot of information out there. I'd say in terms of the trust thing, because the way that I've seen hiring is there's three phases of hiring. There's you hire just someone that is a body. And you're just like, hey, you, you think you could do it? All right, figure it out. Then there's someone who's like smart. And then you have someone who's the expert. The problem is, is that most times when we start out, we don't have money. So we start with level one. And then if, over time, what I've observed is you got to hire level three people, right? And level three people are coming to you and saying, like right now we're hiring a video editor. It's like, you teach me how to make the videos. Because if I'm teaching you, I don't know what you do here. And so it's really, how do you surround yourself with people that not only are level three experts, they love doing that stuff. Mitchell on the dork team, he loves being an executive producer. That's what he loves. And I'm like, well, I love being the voice. The other thing that I've noticed for hiring, especially recently, and this is something I've noticed for who's the best people I've hired, they've applied to work with me in a different way. So Eamon, who runs AppSumo, he didn't just send me his resume. He made a one-minute fun video six years ago. And he's like, yo, dog, Noah, AppSumo, you like tacos. I love tacos. And it was a really fun video. Mitchell, who now runs all of Dork and has a, a great job. I, I think he likes working with me most of the time. He volunteered at a, at a charity bike ride that we put on. He just said, hey, I'll help volunteer. I don't want anything. And from that now, he's running all of Dork. And across the board, Chad, my business partner, who I've now been with nine years, Chad was my first customer at a previous company. And then when I started building AppSumo, he said, hey, if you want help, we had a great relationship. And he's like, and I said, hey, do you want to help me? He's like, yeah. And I said, I have no money. He's like, that's okay. I'll work for free. And so there's something about the people that are willing to put in the work, people that are willing to put in the 1% or be a little bit more different. And, I, and they stand out just like Angus. And it sounds like, is it Chris? Yeah, Christian. Christian, pardon me. And I, I think at the end of the day, one thing that I've thought about in terms of relationships, in terms of friends, in terms of work, it's one word. And the word is impressive. And so I consider you an impressive person. The question that I then think about is like, of my friends who are impressive, 
and of the people I work with who are impressive. And in my relationship is it impressive. And at the end of the day, the success of AppSumo is the people. You know, we've been fortunate of, of the market that we're in and so forth, but it's we have the right people there as well, not just the right strategy. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, yeah, let me blame these people. And it's like, well, you're in charge. And so I think it's really interesting. And, you know, one of the fa- my favorite questions around this is the Netflix question. Have you read the Netflix deck, by the way? No, I haven't. Oh, shit, dude, this is super good as your grown up business. Read it. It's called the Netflix culture deck. So one of the things that it says, this is one of my favorite questions. There's two questions. Uh, one is from Netflix. One is kind of myself or from our team. There's two questions. I don't know which one's Netflix, which one's me. Number one is, how would you feel if this person that works with you goes to work for a competitor? That's actually more for interviews. And the one for your teammates is, if you were starting another company today, who would you take with you? And it's really fucking telling. You're like, well, I take that. That person's awesome. That person's awesome. That person sucks. And just being really intentional and kind of, I think one thing with hiring that's been an actual challenge is onboarding time, because you expect people to be impressive day one, but it does, you have to give them a little bit of chance to be impressive. That's a whole, you know, skill and art. So you have to coach them and how much should you be coaching? But at the end of the day, like, you know, people should be impressing you pretty quickly with uh, whatever specific skill set. And you know how I run an eight-figure company. I noticed in your description, you've got, your point number one is have a clear numerical goal with a deadline. Always. How would you apply that to kind of a YouTuber? Just for a bit of background. So like essentially our, our YouTube AdSense revenue scales directly with the number of views that we get. But then we also have a few other sources like Skillshare classes and some affiliate deals that bring in some chunk of the revenue. But I've never really been sure how to do it in terms of goals. Because if you try and be like, hey, we want this video to hit a million views, that's so out of outside of anyone's control yeah. that how can that possibly be a goal? So have you got any thoughts on on that front? There's a few different ways. And I did want to talk to you. So there's a few other topics I wanted to go over. One of them is how to get you to a million subscribers, which you, you'll eventually hit. But you know, I would wonder how do you get there You know, at the end of the year? Yeah. When would you get to a million? Just if you just kept at the same pace? It's the same pace, probably early next year. Slash possibly by end of the year, yeah. One thing I do want to highlight that you said, I just want for people listening, and it was such a great point, was that just get to your first 100 videos. Do you remember oh, saying that yeah. last time we yeah, chatted? The first 100 videos are going to be crap. You just want to get to the first 100. And I think that's the same thing with the goal. Okay. So you can control how many videos you make. You can't control the views. Yeah. And so in business, I think there's three types of systems. I told you about them. Oh, yes. Hang on. All right. Let me try and remember this. So you said there were numerical goals. There were like systems goals. Yep. And there were process goals was it yeah Mm -hmm. yes yes exactly progress goals progress goals that's the one yeah numerical system progress and so they can be demotivating and i was curious for you and and i'll break you through i'll walk you through exactly how we do this stuff you know does the million matter to you do you feel like the pressure helps or hurts just to give you an example with my podcast i told you i wanted to get a hundred thousand downloads an episode that was before i even started i didn't realize that's literally like your top 10 in the world (laughs) or top 20 in the world i got to twenty five thousand, and because i wasn't at 100 i gave up and if I would have just stuck with it, I'd probably be at 50,000 today. Instead, I'm at seven. And it kind of taught me an interesting lesson that I think goals can be a, a good motivator, but they can also be a, depending on your goal, it could screw you. And so I think you have to find a goal that is genuinely of interest. And so lately for us, my original goal for my personal brand this year for the dork world is called Marg, like Margarita. Okay. Monthly active reader growth. So what Marg means is that in my email list, in terms of people who open or click, I want that number to go up every month. I don't care if it's one person or a thousand or 10,000. I thought about it. I was like, if I get a million people active, do I care? It's like, no, if I help one and it's each month, just one more, that's cool. That's fine. And that kept me motivated. And so that's what I've done. But I've adjusted it a little bit because lately we've been doing more YouTube and I've really enjoyed doing these other experiments. And so we've just called it monthly active audience goal, MAG. 
I think right now we're at 175,000 across the channels that we we care about. So LinkedIn, our Facebook group, organic traffic, active emails, and our YouTube subscribers. We're actually building this tracking into SendFox. So you could grow your audience and and see how your audience number is doing. And so I think we're going to keep the progress goal there instead of saying, how do I go from 200,000 to 2 million this year? Yeah. And so I think you have to decide which goal matters for you. Or is it a systems goal? Hey, like for the gym thing we talked about early on, this is one that I was stuck with. And my buddy Adam from mybodytutor.com, who I, I work with, he said, you know, one year I wanted to get a six pack. And so I did it. One year I wanted to weigh 200 pounds of like bulk. I did it. And I went to him two years ago. And I was like, man, I don't have a goal. He's like, well, what do you really want? And I was like, I just want to go to the gym three times a week. That's a goal. And I thought of that because your videos, which is, I just want to put out three videos a week. So coming back to your situation, I think there's a few different things I would think about. And I learned this when I didn't get a job at Microsoft. So I got rejected from working there after being an intern, which is really no one else got rejected except me. I think very few. But the interview said I was trying to get on the Xbox team and I didn't play Xbox. I didn't even, I wasn't into it. So it wasn't really the smartest thing for me to decide. But he said one thing that stuck with me, and this was 10 years ago now. He said, the way that is the best way to work with other people is you give them, think of it like a football, soccer or American football. You give them the destination yeah. and you give them the boundaries and you let them play. And if they're not scoring, you get involved oh. and you coach them. You can coach them from the side, but if they're not scoring, get involved. Otherwise, let them score. Let those, you know, those are the best people. The people that you want to hire are the ones that are going to want to figure those things out. One thing I would love to be able to do is say to Angus, hey, Angus, you know, we want to get a new book club video out every three weeks and it's up to you to make that happen. And I feel like he would he would just kind of run with it pretty well, but I just haven't really, there's something about putting that out there that has just always felt very scary. And so I feel like I've had too much of like a, an overlord kind of putting my hand in from above when he's probably just more than happy to kind of do his thing and, and give me a semi-finished product that I can just tweak. Which parts do you want to be involved with? Do you want to be involved in the movie or involved in, in creating that show? I think in my ideal world, I'd spend my days uh, reading, writing, and filming. I would rather not write it if it can be avoided, but I want to be the guy standing in, like sitting in front of the camera to sort of talk, essentially. So one thing I've noticed with, with people when you're working with them, at the end of the day, a lot of it is about expectation. Let me just take a step back. So the way that we're hiring a video editor, I'll just tell you our, our four-step yeah. process. The four-step process is, so put out to the world that we're hiring. Step one, email us with your LinkedIn in the body. This is just basic. 50% of people can't get that right. Mm-hmm. They're gone. And then we automatically send it to round two if they can follow that. Round two is for the video editing. Show us a video that you made that you're proud of and show us someone else's video that you like their style of video with interviews. That's step two. Step three is here's a raw video. Make it something that we'd want to put on our channel. Nice. And then step four is that if that's impressive, then we'll, we'll talk with them and hire them. And so it's just making it realistic. So I, I would say with Angus, it's like, Angus, here's the video. Here's what the expectation is. Yeah. I'd like it done within three weeks. The, the one thing I want to caveat or just highlight is you originally said, hey, hey, what about page views? I think what you have to be intentional of is figuring out goals that are controllable. Mm. So with Eamon at AppSumo, he has basically a revenue goal. Let's just say it's like X million. Yeah. And then he's got three strategic initiatives or three KPIs, key performance indicators goals. So the three KPIs is, I think it's base revenue number of active partners, and active customer number. Okay. One's core, which is our core revenue number, and we're doing some new stuff, active number of customers and active partners. And for the most part, I want to stay the fuck away from him. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, it's funny because in the past five years, I've really left him alone for three years and I've been more involved for two. 
And I think it's figuring out what I really love doing and where I could be the most helpful without slowing him down. I think people really thrive when they're their own boss. Like, I don't call anyone at our company employees. I don't want to be anyone's boss. I don't want anyone to be my boss. Yeah, I feel very uncomfortable with those words as well. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not. So, yeah. You know, I want everyone to be their own boss. The other thing that, that might help, and um, we can talk about the Angus example, besides setting expectation of saying, hey, here's what I want by this point. You know, when you read these business books, sometimes they're like, what's your mission and what's your purpose and what's your vision? I'm always like, that sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> so I do think it's important to figure out what makes Ali Abdal Inc. unique. Okay. What are Aliisms? And those are should be very specific to you and the way that you want your business to run. And I think that plus a vision is pretty fucking cool. And a vision is just like, where the fuck I want all this to go? Hmm. Like, hey, I want to be the world's number one educator on productivity, or I want to be the world's, I want to be the number one educator for students. What would that be for you? So at one point it was, I want to be the world's number one medical educator. And then recently I kind of realized that that's not actually what I want. I think, I don't know. How do you figure that out? Like, yeah, I guess you're familiar with the, uh, the parable of the Mexican fisherman. Yes. I think I'm already in my Mexican fisherman zone where like, I can't believe that I get to do what I'm doing. And so I was recently reading Michael Hyatt's The Vision Driven Leader. I was like, okay, you know, everyone says you should have a vision. Let me try and figure this out. Even after reading that, I just couldn't really figure out what do I want my vision to be? Like, how much do you think about that? Like, what's your vision? At the end of the day, with all these things like goals and visions, it has to be, it just has to be something that matters to you. Okay. And so I've had bullshit ones. And I think your vision could potentially change because maybe you reach your vision. But I will say when I worked at Facebook, Mark's vision was to connect the world. That's a pretty good vision. Yeah. It's <laughs> super inspiring. Yeah. And I think what really inspires me and motivates me is just helping these underdogs. I like helping the fucking people that maybe don't get like the recognition or the people making cool shit that just need a little bit of guidance. And if I could help everyone do that, pretty fucking cool. And so that, that motivates me. I, I think when I see people that not do it for me, but they do it for themselves in their own business, mostly around work. I, I'm not as interested in like the other pieces. I just think it's fucking great. You know, I asked my a therapist years ago, I, I said, I have no vision. I said, I got no vision. I was vision. Shit. And I'll ask what he asked you. It's like, what do you want to have happen in the next, let's say, year or a few years? What do you want to have happen with all the things you're doing? I would like to continue making videos each week that inspire and educate people. I don't really care about entertaining, but if they're somewhat entertaining, then that would be quite nice as well. I'd like for that to continue to be a sustainable and kind of a highly profitable endeavor, just because that's kind of cool. I'm big on transparency. I really got a kick out of making this video about how much I earn in a week from different sources. I love the idea of lifting the hood up and showing kind of the process underneath what's kind of going on so that other people who want to do it for themselves, they have a sort of guiding light that helps them along the way. That's a vision. Is it? <laughs> That's exactly what a vision is. You know, a vision is something you want in the future. Yeah. That's all it is. You know, it's a destination on a map. You know, I think the one that if it's bigger and if it's more clear, it's more inspiring. The hard work is worth it if you're challenged, blah, blah, blah. We all know that. And, <laughs> but it has to be something that matters. So having the vision, we have sumoisms. I'll tell you ours. Here's how you know your, your Aliisms or your company-isms matter is that they help run the company when you're not around. Okay. So when people are talking, they're like, one of our things that matters is this. So the, some of the ones that we have, number one, speed is number one. Number two, we can do anything. Okay. Number three, time to magic. Number four, test and invest. And number five, good or great. And I still remember these. I don't, because they fucking matter to me. And that's how I, that matters to our company. And they're all unique to our company. And everyone's company should be unique. So speed is number one is I want to move fucking fast. And so if we have to choose perfection over results, it's results. 
Number two, we can do anything as a mindset. One of my favorite things in a meeting is when someone says to me, I'm like, yo, can we do that? And they're like, yeah, we can do anything. <laughs> nice. We can do anything, but do we want to do everything? That's a whole another discussion. Number three, time to magic. When people are consuming our information or when people are consuming our products, like how fast are they having magic across our products? Number four, test then invest is if we're wanting to do something, don't go balls deep, just test. And if it's great, invest. And then the last one that we have is good or great. And good or great is basically when you do some work or you have you work with some people or anything in the business, is it good or is it great? Instead of saying, hey, have a good day, it should be, yo, have a great day. <laughs> or instead of good morning, have nice. great morning. <laughs> Point being with the sumoisms or the aliisms, those sh- should be ways of operating beyond you. So in terms of the goal for your business, I think you have to decide there's two separate things. There's the main goal. So maybe it is subscribers, maybe it's revenue. Maybe it is just three videos a week. Do you have that in your business? No, not really. I suppose if there is anything, it's total number of views because that in a way drives everything else. It drives subscribers, it drives revenue ultimately. It feels very wrong to be having total number of views as a KPI. I would trust yourself. What feels right? What feels right is two or three videos a week and make them good. <laughs> to be honest. That's a great goal. That's yeah. a great goal. That's it. And what I've always thought with business is that there's many ways to get to the same destination. And I'm only sharing you my recipe from my experiences. Yeah. And it's worked for me. But there are many different ways of that. I think when I haven't had a goal, just any goal, or I've had a goal that wasn't really, I didn't care about, I think that's where I've lost it. Even I would say my goal now with my audience thing, I don't really care if it grows a lot. Okay. I just really want to have fun conversations. I want to keep sharing the things I'm learning at Sumo. I want to meet amazing people. If the audience grows a lot, great. If it doesn't, great. But I have a feeling that the more I'm just going for that instead of going for just the views. Yeah, the more the audience will just naturally grow anyway. And it, it has been because I'm not giving a fuck about that. And people can tell. People aren't stupid, especially if you want a smart audience. Yeah. Now, I feel like that's almost identical for me. Like I essentially at every inflection point in growth of the YouTube channel, I kind of stopped to ask myself, okay, how am I feeling about this? And I realized that beyond 5,000 subscribers, the number itself stopped meaning anything at all. And having 500,000 subscribers feels emotionally no different to having 5,000 subscribers. Because at 5,000, at that point, you're like, oh, I can put out a Q&A and I'll get enough, get enough questions to make a video out of it. I can put out an Instagram story being like, hey guys, any ideas for a new video? And I will get enough responses for me to actually make a video off of that. You know, at 20,000, 50, 100, 500,000, I asked myself, does this feel any different to 5,000? And it really didn't. So I think I also don't really care about the numbers, but it's nice for the numbers to be trending in a, in a positive direction. The way I like it, I do like giving people I work with goals and I like giving goals or things that are controllable. And so, for instance, you can't control Google traffic. You should look at it. You should be aware of what your organic traffic is looking, but you can control the amount of articles you write each week. Yeah. You can't make anyone join your newsletter, but you can control the number of links that you're putting to it or the places that you're doing it. I'll tell you just how we're thinking about it for the con- my personal content and personal brand stuff. So for May, we call them GMOs. May Dork GMO. So basically, the GMO, the way we structure our business, this is across the entire company. With the Sumo Group or with AppSumo, it's more sophisticated and it's a larger business. We have a revenue goal and then we do a full budget and then we do an H2. The second year, we're doing a budget review for coming up on the year. And at the end of the year, we do the next year and all this stuff. But I'd say for more smaller businesses, have a clear goal for the year. We spreadsheet that out, but then it's like, well, what is this month's goal? So our goal is to get to 200,000 underdogs in terms of our audience. That's a good name for it. (laughs) Underdogs, yeah. Key metrics that, that we care about are how many collabs. So working with you is a collab. So that was one. Big name guest, you're a big name guest to me. Oh, really? Oh, thank you. Yeah, dude, you're dope. And so we have targets. And that is a function of how many people we're reaching out to. And the number of emails added 
the KPIs are the main drivers that affect your goal. Okay. So goal metrics and those metrics. So collabs, big name guests and emails added. That is our main things that is going to affect how many underdogs that we can reach. And then the outcomes are the activities that we're going to be doing to drive the metrics. And so for this month, the outcomes are we want to hire a social media person, we want to hire a video editor, we want to start some businesses live. People seem to resonate with that. Blog speed optimization. So we notice our, my site has some slowness. So some things also, if it's not like it has to be an outcome, it could also be like a book. So I want to evaluate doing a book. So I've been journaling and talking to people about starting a book. Blog 10 pages dialed in. So optimizing the different pa- 10 pages on our blog. I think one thing that we did this month and Chad was really interesting about it. Chad said, what is the 10x stuff? It's not that everything has to be 10x, but he said, you're taking a lot of singles. You're swinging for some singles. What are some of the home run swings? So like collabs are home run swings, getting big name guests are home run swings, doing a book is a potential home run swing, starting a business, maybe that's a home run swing. You know, optimizing a blog page or putting out another blog post, that's like a 5% swing. Yeah. What's a 500% swing? And so just figuring out some ratio of that, the more numbers you look at, the less focused you're going to be. Okay. Because you're looking left and you're looking right at the same time. So you're going to go nowhere. Yeah. So in terms of the weekly KPIs doc, in this thing, the only thing that matters in our main KPIs doc is the ones I've kind of talked to you. What's our active open rate? So it's 48,000. What's our YouTube subscribers, LinkedIn followers, and organic traffic? And that equals the number of underdogs we have. It's cool how you're tracking all these numbers. Well, we're building this into SendFox. That's why I want to get you and your newsletter upgraded to SendFox. And we're also automatically pulling in all of your social media content and helping figure out which ones to send each week so you don't have to spend time writing it up. Oh, sweet. Sounds like the dream. It's what I wanted. I've been wanting it for a while. It sounds like someone like yourself would, uh, would benefit. And so in terms of Angus and things like that with Mitchell, Mitchell is in charge of the GMO. Oh, okay. So you don't have to think about it too hard. What I want to spend my day is this with you. Yeah. And, you know, helping out SendFox, helping out AppSumo, helping out Drop and the different properties. But this is what I want. I want to be a promoter. I want to be an evangelist. I want to meet great and cool people and share their stories and, you know, and share the things we're learning at Sumo Group. And so Mitchell owns that goal, the 200,000. Okay. And so he's in charge of it. Not as like I'm taking no responsibility, but I'm here to help him achieve that goal. Oh, interesting. The one thing just to highlight, and I'll say it again, is set the expectation of what greatness is. So if you're saying, hey, I want a video done in three weeks, here's what I expect it to look like. You need to make sure that's clear because sometimes that's where it's disconnected. The other thing I've learned from hiring freelancers over 20 years is that especially early on, you probably want to do more micro check-ins. So for a first project, like every other day, like, hey, just send me your progress just so I can give you feedback. And then after the first time, it generally gets, it's great. Otherwise, what I've noticed is that they come back three weeks later and you're like, fuck you, man, this sucks. <laughs> and it, that's actually, it's our fault. Yeah. And I've learned this from freelancers because the communication was, is always hard when you're working remotely. And so it's like, hey, just show me like early pieces, really early as possible. And let me give you feedback and then do that for the first one. And if they still suck after the first one, then you have a problem. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I've accidentally been doing with Angus as well. Like for the first video or two that he edited, I would send through lots and lots of changes and I would ask him to put each kind of draft of the video up on Frame.io at the end of every day, just so I can see kind of what direction we're heading in. But now I think having done two or three, he's at the point where I can kind of be a bit more hands off with it and then just potentially make tweaks at the end and just do the final sign off on it, which I hope at some point I won't even have to do because I'll just you know, trust that it'll be, it'll be solid. The dream is that it just comes out. Yeah. <laughs> and it's impressive as fuck. Like my favorite thing, I work with David Kelly and I work with Mitchell Cohen and these guys and the girls I work with. I love when I see stuff that's better than I could have imagined. Yeah, that's such a nice feeling. Yeah, that's how it should feel. And I I think it's setting the expectation of what that feels like, good or great, and letting them have the autonomy, like true autonomy. Everyone says, oh, I love autonomy. 
Yeah, but you fucking micromanage, which I know I do. And so I think it is also picking and choosing your battles. And I, I'm still working on that. Like a few years ago, I really fucked up the company. We call it seagulling. Okay, what's that? So seagulling is where you come in and you shit on people and you fly away. <laughs> okay. And so I was shitting all across everyone and I wasn't putting in the work and I wasn't really being helpful around it. And so that's something I'm working on where if there's something I don't like, picking and choosing, is this really when I pick a battle? And if I don't like it, I'm actually being productive in that situation. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of the, the video stuff as well, because there's always stuff to nitpick about videos. And I have to always ask myself, okay, will anyone apart from me know or care about this? The fact that the font was italic rather than just, you know, straight up. <laughs> Actually, yes. So I would argue both sides of that. I will say at Facebook, Mark was very particular about everything. And honestly, at the end of the day, it raised the bar. They fucking argued about fonts for hours, which annoyed oh, the nice. shit. That, for me, annoys the shit. Yeah. I, mean, I don't give a fuck about fonts. I care about the words. But for them, they did. And I just think it sets a precedent. So you have to decide what level of standard of excellence is the Ali Incorporated. Okay, that makes me feel better about quibbling about font choices. Mark built one of the largest companies in the world that way. And Steve Jobs did it his way. And I think there's many different ways of doing it. I don't think there's a right or wrong. It's just deciding what's important to you. What's your process for weekly check-ins? Do you do weekly check-ins? Is that a thing? Yeah, so it's changed over the years. It's funny, I actually looked at our old weekly check-ins. So what I used to do is just have them send me a weekly status update every Monday across their different stuff. So, hey, what's your goal? What's the main things? How did you do it? What are you doing? And we stopped doing the emails, but I'll just tell you the two main things that we do now. Number one, on Sundays, I started hating my week because I was like, okay. oh, I have to do all these fucking check-ins. I don't want to be doing check-ins. Yeah. And I didn't look forward to it. And so that was kind of the key one. I'll just tell you how we structure it now. Number one, we do an all hands meeting once a week on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. It's called Sumo Weekly. And so the way our Sumo Weekly is, it's structured in a few different categories, but it's basically, what's the goal? How are we doing our goal? What's our discussion points? Like, is there anything to talk about? So this is a team-wide one, because I think it's really important. Like, people want to be a part of something. Your audience wants to be a part of something. So goal, discussion, props. So prop everyone out as much as possible. What do you mean by prop? What is something great that each person did that week? Oh, those kind of props. Okay, cool. And so I'm shocked at how much you could pay people so little and just pay them with props. And I don't mean I pay, our, pay the people that work at our company really little necessarily. Yeah. I think we pay well. People want recognition more than money. People want to be appreciated. They want to be like, wow, even if it's a gift, even if it's just these words, and I don't think people do it for this. You know, I think you hire people that are motivated, but it's nice to be heard. Yeah. So discussion, props, and then in each of the teams, the way we structured it is what's the team goal? And then what did they do last week? And then what are they doing this week? Okay. And so this meeting now is about 30 minutes. We do this on Tuesdays. And then Mitchell and the different team leads, I meet with once a week. I think the question I, I've really, that's really changed meetings and team check-ins is how do I make it something I look forward to instead of something I have to do? Like, how do I make it something fun? Yeah. So with Mitchell and David on like sendfox.com or on, on dork stuff, it's not that everything is always fun, but like, how do we make this a thing to look forward to that we get to talk about fun problems? Like, oh, cool, this is not working. How are we going to do this? And I think a lot of times people just have structure that they don't revisit. There's like, oh, we just had this meeting. So I think the question is, what are you not looking forward to with your meetings or your check-ins? We had it on Friday and I was a little bit of a dick about it was, does this need to be a meeting or can I just be a status update? So people were reading off their GMOs. They were reading it off. And I was like, I could fucking read your GMO. And like the whole thing is the GMO is at the end of the month, you accomplish all this stuff that we've agreed on. So unless it's off course or you have questions, I don't need you to tell me about it unless you want to like, hey, 
this thing is broken or this thing is going great. Otherwise, just accomplish your GMO. And so we do basically the weekly meeting on Tuesday, individual meetings with the team leads. That's on Tuesday. Tuesday's my kind of Tuesday meeting. And then on Friday, we do a thing called court, which is nights of the round table. Okay. <laughs> and so Friday is basically just like, hey, how'd the week go? And I think the main, actually, this is the biggest thing we do on Fridays that's been a game changer for us. We have discussions about the week, but really what we do on Fridays is what's the highlight and lowlights of the week? That's actually probably the coolest part of it is that, hey, what stuff happened this week that you're proud of? What stuff happened that we could work on and improve? That's just been a fun way. That's a good idea. At the moment, we've got this like weekly check-in template or notion that I ask these guys to fill in each week and I try to do it myself. But then I think for the first two weeks, we had like a, I had like a one-on-one meeting with each, each of these guys on, on the Monday. And then it just ended up falling by the wayside because, I mean, I quite enjoy chatting to them, but I just sort of felt that, I don't know, I guess for me, it just wasn't really much of a priority. And so just kind of completely forgot about it. I was looking at the weekly check-ins yesterday and realized, oh, we just, all of us have just forgotten about them for the last two weeks <laughs> just <laughs> because it's been a thing that I just haven't really cared about enough. So I wonder if maybe just switching it to an all-hands meeting just once a week. Try it out. In the 10 years of this business, it's evolved many times. I think the only thing that I like is I do like kind of a weekly status. Yeah. Like in the leadership team for the company, we, do, we have a daily pulse. Okay, what's that? So the Daily Pulse is all around AppSumo. AppSumo is our number one focus in terms of the main business. Like everything is around, like even with my dork stuff, it's like, all right, how do I eventually help AppSumo more? Not eventually, how do I AppSumo the most? And so the Daily Pulse is basically, how are we each day against our main goal? And what are the leading indicators that we're looking at that we need to be tracking? And so we're doing that because of the coronavirus. We're a little bit more cautious than we, we normally used to do this only every other day, but now we're doing it every single day. So we basically look at what's our revenue, what's our rolling seven-day revenue, how is our month revenue comparing to projected, are we on track or off track, and then what are our leading indicators and how are they doing compared to the previous week? So the leading indicators we look at are conversion rate, traffic rate, refund rate, and number of email signups. And actually, I did want to talk to you about monetization. One thing in business is that we picked a tidal wave where even if we did really badly, we'd mm. still do pretty damn well. And I think what I've noticed with businesses is you still are going to put in the same amount of work regardless of your industry. So at least try to think of what industry will be having a tidal wave or will be getting bigger. Like, here's a simple one. Do you think more people are going to consume content in the future or less? Probably more. <laughs> more. More yeah. people are going to get online. More. more people, so yeah. getting on as a content creator, doing your first 100 videos, doing a SendFox newsletter or doing a YouTube channel, probably a tidal wave that's pretty good. And people are like, oh yeah, but I already missed the boat. It's like, bitch, people have been writing books for hundreds of years. Like, does yeah. that mean I shouldn't write a book now? It's... I'd say fortunate and also luck. I think fortune comes from the fortunate. That was one I came up with yesterday for Twitter. Fortune comes from the fortunate. That sounds very uh, quippy. It doesn't really work though. Can you just get a fortune with being fortunate? To be fortunate, you have to have a fortune. Anyways, so this is the daily pulse we do as a leader. This is a leadership. But I think one thing I learned from Keith Raboy, and if you don't follow Keith Raboy on Twitter, this guy's a Silicon Valley badass. I've been trying to get him on my show and he keeps rejecting me. But one thing he taught me years ago, because he was one of the executives at PayPal, he helped found Square and all these other things, or was one of the early executives at Square, is that you want to look at ratios and you want to look at trends over time. So you want to look at graphs. If you can have a graph and ratios, it'll be better indicators of it. And I mean, you know, data and stuff like that, but that's something that we're still working on. So we have a spreadsheet that shows these trending because sometimes the day looks good, but you're not seeing what the actual overall trend is. Okay. So I, I think in terms of your business, what I would probably start with is do the all hands and then maybe each person has their own kind of thing that they own. I think real success of a teammate is accountability and accomplishing that expectation. Hmm. So like, okay. hey, you said you'd do this this week and everyone should be able to see it. Oh, you didn't do that? 
And people don't want to let others down. They don't want to let themselves down. And so it should be attainable and they should have, be able to control it as much as possible. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so I'm going to try that from, from this week. Weekly, all hands, see what happens. Yeah, make it fun. Make, yeah. make it something that you're like, hey, guys, I want to just talk about this one video. Or, hey, why don't we all watch one Peter McKinnon video? And we're all going to figure out what are things that he's doing that we're not, that we can maybe do in one of our future videos. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> That'd be quite fun as well, yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we're still stuck on the 1995 way of meetings, which I worked at Intel. My whole fucking day was meetings. I didn't do shit for work. And so I think it made me disgusted with meetings in general. <laughs> okay, so one meeting a week. Keep it fun. Keep it short and try and get everyone to have a goal that they're working on for the week. I think that's something that we're not really doing at the moment. We have a, well, it'd be sort of be nice to get the Skillshare class up by the end of July, but we don't really have a kind of this week I'm working on this thing. So one suggestion for you, if I may. Mm, of course. How much money do you make a month from your 600,000 subscribers and millions of views a month? Did you actually say the number? Yeah, so it's sort of between four and seven thousand dollars off youtube adsense depending on the month and depending on how many videos are released that month across all of your social media stuff oh across everything it seemed like 15 to 20 yeah 15 to 20 close to 20 these days great so yeah everyone you know it's so funny whenever we share numbers of people are like 20 240 all right he's making 250 yeah. i think i actually <laughs> calculated more around 300 that you're doing i think what's interesting about that it's actually not that much money i'm not bragging i'm not like but it, there's many ways of making money yeah I think it's relative to what you said is what brings you joy and how cool is it that you get to make a lot, you know, a good amount of money, a great amount of money. One suggestion is you don't seem as motivated about the money. Totally fine with that. For example, does Notion pay you every month? They do for sponsored videos. How much do they pay? I can't disclose that publicly okay. by the contract. Notion but. should be paying you minimum 10000 a month right now. Minimum. And you should have a one-year agreement. The reason you don't is because you're new. I'm not insulting you, by the way. This no, is not insult. By all means. But what I'm trying to highlight, though, you might want to consider finding someone to pay attention to the things that you don't want to pay attention to. Okay. My suggestion is it might be interesting to find a business person. One thing I, I just started really thinking about is why do all these musicians have like 10 people that take all their money? You need an agent. And then you have a manager. And then you have a booker. And then you have the, I'm like, you have all these fucking people. And you know why? Because all they want to do is make fucking music. They want to get depressed, do drugs, make music, <laughs> get in a relationship, break up, make songs about that. A thought for you is, What's all those things that if you had someone doing it, like there's no reason you guys couldn't be a seven-figure business. There's like absolutely no reason. The fact that you're teaching productivity, Notion should be paying you 10,000. All these other companies. And that was my thought with you and just a suggestion when I was watching. It's like, you're doing great. And I don't mean it as criticism. So I, I hope you or the audience don't take no, it as that. But 100%. it seemed like you're playing with small money. Really? Because it feels like really big money to me. Okay. I can't believe how big the money feels. It is. And you're it's doing great. That it's actually small money in the grand scheme of things. I don't mean this to be mean. No, 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 no. Yeah. Like, please, by all means, like, I'm here to learn. So I think this is where a lot of these influencers, and I've been noticing it, is that do I have a lot of social media influence, like in the scheme of all social media influencers? Not really. Maybe in my world, in my marketing world. In but sort of tech marketing type stuff. Yeah, yeah. tech start startups and marketing. And, you know, I'm a B minus in that world. Okay. <laughs> but in the scheme of like the Casey Neistats or the Tim Ferriss, yeah. like that, that's like the Gary's of the world. They have first names in those worlds. Hmm. Most of these people, besides the top level, don't actually make that much money. And I'm not here to brag. It's not, I'm just trying to give perspective. I don't have a lot of social media influence, but our company makes a lot of money. Mm. And I think it's because we focus on the things that actually are a business. Okay. Besides just social media. And so what I'm trying to say there is that I think you have many different business opportunities to consider that could take you to seven, potentially eight figure company. There's no reason you guys, you couldn't either license or create your own productivity software. 
I think you should focus on the stuff that you love and, and the world you love, which is the exploring productivity, exploring learning and sharing about it. Yeah. I think there's something there where if you had someone at least considering or evaluating that for you, you found your aim in to run the business. Yeah. Couldn't be a seven figure business in a year. Well, that could be interesting. You have 600,000 people interested in learning more from you. Yeah. It's a reasonably big number. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of the influencers, they have a lot of, you know, some of them don't have audiences or I've noticed a lot of your audience was maybe in countries that are super wealthy. They still have money to spend. Like one mm. of the best examples is Michelle Fan, which I, do you remember her? Oh, yes. The makeup I girl. I come across a YouTube channel. Yeah. So she created it. My friend used to work at the company. It's called Ipsh or Ipsy. So she basically took her YouTube audience. She was one of the, I think the first multi-millionaire, multi-multi-millionaire on YouTube. She said, hey, well, what if I just created my own makeup box, but I'm going to find someone who's an operator to run it all. And I'll just mention it a few times. And I'm going to take 40% or whatever percent of the company she got. The company ended up doing hundreds, I don't know if they did hundreds of millions, but it was, it was definitely in the eight figures of recurring revenue. Oh, damn. So I think that that's kind of where I've really been happier lately with our company where, how do I just spend more of my time in my sweet spot? And my sweet spot is this. My sweet spot is like kind of playing with new tech, but I'm not to the level of nerdy you are. Then that's your, that's what you get to do. I get to promote you. Nice. <laughs> I think it's finding other people in the, what other places am I missing my sweet spot? Okay. No, that's really interesting that you say that. Like, I've been thinking for a while that we're potentially leaving a lot of money on the table. And I think we're still thinking quite small. For example, releasing an online class on Skillshare. There was one I made about how to edit videos. It's like this three hour long class. It's pretty good, if I say so myself. And that was making, say, around about $3,000 a month. And I was like, oh, damn, this is like more than I'm making as a doctor just off this one video that I filmed in like a day in September 2019. And now we've got another one, which is how to study for exams, which is doing sort of like five times better than the previous one. And I've got this long list of like 12 different Skillshare classes that I could do just because it feels like free money if you can just kind of make this one online course. And then A, Skillshare, the platform markets for you. B, they sponsor my videos and therefore my ad rates go up because I'm driving traffic to my own stuff. C, they pay $10 for every free trial sign up you get. So I'm getting like, you know, 10 to 20 of those each day. And it just feels like completely cheating. What I've had in my mind is, hey, potentially we could release one new class every other month. We actually could do it significantly more frequently than that and potentially even look to having them on my own website rather than running them through this middleman. Because ultimately, anything on Skillshare, even if it's like a five hour long class, the most you'll make from it is maybe four or five dollars per user. And if I were to charge ten dollars per user on my website, yes, the numbers might be less because people want stuff for free and with their free trial, but potentially we could get even more sales that way. So there's a fine line of greed. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm still figuring it out. You know, I've been doing the online world 20 years and I'm still figuring out my greed yeah. and my ego and it's evolving. I would say at our company, there's many, 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 many ways that we're not making as maximum money. And there's many, many, many ways we're maximizing our enjoyment and our customers' enjoyment. And I think everyone has to decide that for themselves. I think for me, it's just figuring out what we want to do. I'll plant a seed. And here's one way that you can think about this. What level of a decision are you making? And so this is something that we started really doing and it's really changed it's, this is the past few years. And so think about this. So you're doing Skillshare and you're making now, let's just say 10,000 a month, or let's just say, it sounds like six. That's uh, whatever, 72,000 a year. Sure. So that's a five-figure decision. Okay. Now start thinking about six-figure decisions. And if you're not doing seven-figure decisions, then you're probably doing two smaller things. It's a, as you said, leveling. So when I started AppSumo, my goal was $3,500 a month. That's it. Yeah, that's a five figure. And so the point that's important there, that's really the key thing is opportunity cost. It's almost the same amount of time to do five figure decision versus six versus seven versus eight. And the only way you'll get to that next level is saying, is this a six figure decision? Let me just give you another example. Sendfox.com. Yeah, I love it because I hated MailChimp. 
I hated paying money for like review. I think it's way overpriced. I think all these other things are way overcomplicated. And we launched it and we got it last year to, I think last year it did like a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue. And as a leadership team, we said, if this is not a seven figure business by the end of 2020, we'll cancel it. Oh, wow. Okay. Because we have these people that work on it that are awesome. And we have other things we could do. Like, think about it this way. There's longer term stuff and there's a whole other discussion, but could we put those people on AppSumo and get seven figures of value from them working on that instead? The answer is yes. So if they're not at least doing it on SendFox, which I love and I'm, I don't want to cancel my baby. Yeah. You know, it's a shared baby. That's a community. But that is the, the harder decisions that I think people don't make. And we're starting to realize that as we're, we're wanting to scale the business. On a related note, there was a, a tweet I came across last week, which is that audit your time and see how much of what you're doing is a $10 an hour activity, $100 an hour, $1,000 an hour, and $10,000 an hour activity, and try and do more of the $10,000 an hour activities and less of the $10 an hour things. Because it feels very productive going on my computer and replying to YouTube comments, and I could do it for hours. And that's nice for the people that I'm, I'm replying to, but that's very much a $10 an hour thing that I'm doing with my time. Be careful with that, though. Oh, yeah? Be careful with that. Don't stop doing the things that got you successful. And honestly, yeah, I, one of the true. questions I had for you is you, you seem very accessible. Yeah, I try and reply to all, all my YouTube comments and, or at least kind of heart them or like them or whatever. There's a balance there, man. I don't know the right answer. I, yeah. I think I have a friend, Adam, who runs a body tutor site, mightybodytutor.com, and he loves helping clients. And he's like, my business isn't growing. And I'm like, that's fine. But it's not growing because you're working with clients. And so if you want to keep working with clients, keep working with clients. If you want to grow the business, then maybe reduce your client load and hire other coaches. I lately have been going into replying to more comments and less on I'm only going to do my $10,000 activities yeah. because that's been more fulfilling for me to actually see that Emmett or Jason or these different people like this girl today that was messaging about her business. Like I'm replying. I don't make shit, yeah. but it, it, it fills me up. So I shouldn't feel bad necessarily about <laughs> being like, oh, I should be making these $10,000 decisions. Uncertain ones. I think you have to say what matters to you. And so I remember I met this YouTuber who he had a lot of views. I just didn't like him. But he said, he's like, yeah, I have a VA in Philippines who responds to all my comments under my name. And I thought, one, I thought that's impressive because that builds a community. I actually was like, okay, there's something yeah. interesting with that. But two, I think if it's all under your name and you're not actually doing any of it, it just doesn't seem sincere, right? If you're responding and it's not actually you, a little bit, it's on the edge. And so I'm now enjoying it. So I think you have to find what works for you. But I love that you're doing that. And you, the reason you've built 600,000 people in, I would say really quickly, frankly, do you think it's been quick? It's not as quick as like Peter McKinnon, but it's, it's pretty quick in the grand scheme of things. In the scope of YouTube world, you're really impressive around the growth. And it's because the quality is there, but it's also because you've connected. Like someone said this to me, my buddy Charlie Hohen, and I'm going to bring him on my show recently. So everyone should check out Charlie Hohen, Recession Proof Job or charliehohen.com. He said, Noah, why do you think Ramit, Sethi, and Tim Ferriss are more popular than you? Okay. <laughs> I've been around just as long as them. I'm as old as them. I think I've done, as, yeah. I've done interesting things that I'm very proud of for myself. And he said, but why do you think they're more popular? And the answer shocked me. And this is his answer. He said, because they've gotten people more results than you have. Hmm. It's interesting. And so for you, the fact that you are replying and one by one getting results and connecting with your audience is a differentiator. Okay. That time to magic. <laughs> Think about this. All these other creators, they are so big. You can text a thing and then you get like some spam text from them or whatever the happens. Yeah. And now, you know, people today are like, oh, you responded? This, I'm going to love you forever. The bar of excellence yeah. is so low, it's easy to win. All you have to do is message your people and tell them you care. Nice. <laughs> and which is what you do. And I think that's also probably part of your secret sauce that you didn't realize was part of the sauce. Okay. 
Cool. That makes me feel better about replying to comments. I think there's a definitely a balance of scale in I don't have a cool like phrase for it, but you know, the scale versus fulfillment ratio. I want to write that down. Scale versus yeah, that's nice. <laughs> there's that quote by Derek Sivers uh, from Anything You Want, which is one that I always always come back to. I think this is my my favorite quote of all time. He's talking about you know this encounter with some businesses. Uh, sometimes MBA types would ask me, "What's your growth rate? What's your retained earnings as a percentage of gross? What are your projections?" I just say, "I have no idea. I don't even know what some of that means." I started this as a hobby to help my friends, and that's the only reason it exists. There's money in the bank, and I'm doing fine, so no worries. They tell me that if I analyze the business better, I could maximize profitability. Then I'd tell them about the taxi driver in Vegas. And here's a quote. Never forget why you're really doing what you're doing. Are you helping people? Are they happy? Are you happy? Are you profitable? Isn't that enough? And every time I read that, I think, you know what? It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> I'm more than happy doing the stuff I'm doing right now. It's sustainable. It's fun. It helps people. It's growing. I don't need to overthink it. I can just, yeah, just have fun, enjoy the ride, and be the Mexican fisherman. One last thing I was curious, and we can, I don't know if we'll, we'll include this part. I was curious about your dating. Oh, yeah. I'd love to talk about that because it's, it's not really going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking because you have an Instagram, you have a YouTube, you put on your, your website on aliabdal.com, hey, I'm available for coffee. You tell people you're single. I don't know if you're putting that out there, maybe, maybe you're not. And yeah, I'm curious what that experience has been like. Yeah, so I've not had a lot of inbound leads, as it were. <laughs> so there were a couple of dates I went on with a, a sort of fan last year, which didn't go that well. I think it was more the fact that we just weren't compatible rather than because she was a fan. And I've had a handful of kind of marriage proposals via email, usually from Asian people in Pakistan or India being like, hey, you know, I've got a friend, here's her kind of marriage CV in air quotes. So that's been kind of interesting, but I haven't really had much in the way of often friends would be like, hey, so, you know, you must be getting loads of chicks now that you're YouTube famous. And I'm like, well, no, not really, actually. I mean, <laughs> I openly advertise the fact that I'm single and occasionally I get an email, but not much more beyond that. Have you got any tips on that front? I ain't got shit, man. That's why I was asking you. <laughs> <laughs> now that wisdom that... <laughs> well, I did, yeah. I'm recently single, and so I'm exploring that world. Are you on the apps? I've only been on the app like a day, a few days. I don't even know. I'd say my one tip from the app is pay for it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I've got lifetime premium on all of them just because yeah. it saves my time. I'm just like, Han, for $20, I can meet potentially my partner forever. Like, that sounds like a pretty good value. Yeah, like, hell yeah. I think the other thing is probably putting it out in the world. I don't know. There's different strategies. Who knows? I think right now I'm really just enjoying myself time and like this time, like to have someone else come and be a part of it. Like the bar is so high now that I don't even want to start thinking about that bar. It's kind of the same for me. Like I think that anytime I've been kind of in a relationship or close to a relationship in the past, it's been a case of hanging out with this person has to be more fun than just being on my computer and making videos. And being on my computer and making videos is so much fun that I feel like it's potentially an, an unrealistic expectation that hanging out with someone would be more fun than that. So right now, what, what I'm thinking is, you know, we're in lockdown at the moment. I want to try and pour fire on the YouTube thing as much as possible. And then from August, I'm planning to travel the world. And maybe I'll, I'll do a bit more experimentation in that regard. My mom says that one, she's like, you're the greatest, you deserve the greatest, all this blah, blah, blah stuff. But she's like, you know, it'll happen when you don't want it to happen. So like, that's what's going to happen, which it could. But I also think a lot of things in life, you make them happen. I don't think someone magically, even with the, I guess maybe with the apps it happens, but someone magically doesn't knock on the door. Yeah. They can with these apps now. I, you know, one thing I will add that I've been thinking about in relation to that, especially when I drink, I think about, I actually think about it when I drink. I said, are you the person that you would actually want to be with? Right. And when I'm drinking, I don't know if I'm my best self all this. Sometimes I am. Like last night I had a few white claws. What's a white claw? It's a soda water with liquor. Dude, it's the craze in America. It's blown up. 
It's huge. Talk to any of your American friends. Be like, hey, do you know White Claws? They're like, oh my god, everyone's real. Oh my god, I love them. Yeah. But I think the point though is that I'm like, is this the version of myself that the person I would want to be with would be accepting of or be proud of? It makes me reflect on that, and I'm not trying to just be there for some imaginary person in the future, <laughs> but it's making me say like, is this the version of me that I want? That's a good way to think about it. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode. If you did, go check out Ali's YouTube channel. Just search for Ali Abdal and you will find him. It's amazing. One of the few channels I love subscribing to. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go have some tacos and beer over Zoom. And also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. I put my best tips in a single short email every single week, and I hook up exclusive content to you gorgeous email subscribers. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. Sendfox.com slash Noah. And a final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing the podcast because he's the best. And thank you to the Dork team. There's four of us now, which is crazy. It's Mitchell, David, Michael, and Jeremy. Thank you guys. You guys are phenomenal. Special shout out this week as well to the moms of Sumo Group. There's some amazing women out there. Much respect. And I hope you're getting some good sleep. Have a lovely day. What's your favorite breakfast food?